This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who's playing hooky today. Ah, oh, that's not true. Apparently, that poor guy. Apparently, he has a sore throat. Not even here to defend himself. But he also has a son that he hasn't seen for two years that just came home Friday. All I'm saying is, you know, and a sore throat. Yeah, yeah. It's just uh, it's it's very convenient. But I, you know, had he said I want to spend more time with my son, I would have been just as happy <laughs> for him. Uh, anyway, yes, we are Dr. Matless today, but that's okay. We still have Terry South with us here today. We've also got Cole Wissinger, who's come to the rescue once again. Pinch hitting. And, uh, Cole, we mentioned... As it were. Yeah. You had to bring that up. You had Those are very choice words, pinch hitting. I pay attention to what you, I say. You did that on purpose, mm-hmm. because during the break you told me that spring... I almost said spring cleaning. Spring training for baseball has started. You betcha. You knew that would put a smile on my face. Mm-hmm. And, uh, oh, isn't it amazing? And we, you and I were just talking about this. When you go the price, when you look at players' salaries per game, baseball players are probably underpaid compared to other sports. Because anyone that makes millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars deserves to be in the bracket of underpaid. We need to feel sorry for these baseball players who mm-hmm. may be making hundreds of millions of dollars, but they're also playing hundreds of games each Which year. Which none of the other sports do. Right. right. How many does football have each year? Football's got 16 in your regular season. Uh, so if you're the Browns, that's normally where it stops. If you're the Patriots, you get an extra three or four. So what's, um, the, what's the biggest football salary you know of? Well, Jimmy Garoppolo just got paid quite a bit of money this offseason, and Kirk Cousins is about to get even more. That's, for 16 it's games. quite a bit. <laughs> maybe, you know, maybe we need to look at it from the standpoint of the people that are getting paid the most per game are those that are destroying their bodies the fastest. And football is definitely in that category. Right. Yeah. That would qualify. So in other sports news, apparently the we had the uh, closing ceremonies of the Olympics. No more Olympics. On Sunday. Two years. It's sad. Uh, Most... Uh, Partly because it's over, but also partly because I didn't watch any of the Olympics. And I, it's it's interesting how much I can learn about myself having not watched any of the Olympics. What I learned was I think I'm more of a Summer Olympics guy. And that's okay. Yeah? You're allowed. I mean, they you've just got, run around in circles and do other unexciting things. You've so got sprinting. You've got swimming. Volleyball is one of my favorite sports to watch. Okay. There's ping pong. Who doesn't and love a good ping pong That's match? true. Ping pong gets quite intense. Did you watch the closing ceremonies, Terry? No. Didn't. No. The opening ceremonies? No. Anything in between that? Um, no. <laughs> so we're just a bunch of non-watchers, although I think, Cole, you did watch some of it, right? Yeah. I, I watched curling and hockey and biathlon and cross-country skiing and... Quite a few others. <laughs> My wife told me the lowest number of medals the U.S. has won in 20 years. I think it's the time difference. Really? Yeah. It's basic. I mean, for me, watching it, it was the time difference because anything major that happened, I'd see it somewhere. 
You'd see like the headline, like we yeah. either won or lost, or this was amazing or disappointing. So at that point, I'm like, why do I need to watch it? I already know the outcome. How did the Olympics score in the ratings department? It was bad. Oof. But you know, bad relative to all of TV. Well, it seems like we it usually does better, at least here in the States, when they're hosted in the States. Sure. Right? Or close to uh, our time period. It really, yeah. I think it comes a lot down to the fact that most of these things happened by about noon in the United States, all those events are over. Right. right? And so when you get on, if you get on any social media, you'll see who won, and then NBC's <laughs> holding all that footage until the evening, and then you can watch it in their prime time, you know, yeah. human interest filled. Unless you stayed up until dominated. about two in the morning to watch yeah, the women's they, they, gold medal game in ice hockey, like ran, I did. Yeah, they Whoa. ran some of these. They ran some of these live. You could watch them on different networks, but most people wouldn't. It so was the, painfully I mean, late. It seems it seems like a bad model where you're you're trying to have this captivated audience on and subject matter that's readily available. All you have to do is do a quick search and you can find it. You don't have to do a quick search. You just turn on your computer sometimes and it's right there on whatever homepage you have. They just have the headline, you know, this team won, this team lost, which ruins any chance of you wanting to watch that later in the day because you're like, I'll watch something else. Oh, yeah. Terry, I want to highlight something here. Can you even fathom being awake at two in the morning? Yeah, sure. Really? Right. Wow. See... It just depends on the day. It seems like once you get married... The the new late becomes midnight, and then once you start having kids, the new late is 10 o'clock at 10, the latest. Yeah, yeah it yeah. depends on the day. So I guess there's always four years from now. Where is the Where are the Winter Olympics going to be held four years from now? I don't know. Anybody? Somewhere. Cole, even a true fan like you doesn't even know. Wow. But you're here. That's what's most important. And Terry South is also here. He's uh, going to give us a taste of what's going on around the rest of the country. Florida Governor Rick Scott has told the state law enforcement department to open an investigation into the handling of the Parkland shooting or school shooting that left 17 students and staff dead. Questions have emerged about a 26-minute security tape delay. Several armed officers at the school who didn't do anything to stop the gunman and reports that uh, the shooter displayed troubling behavior for years before the Valentine's Day attack. The governor's office said late Sunday that the investigation would begin immediately and that it would offer full accountability for any shortcomings in the response to the shooting. There's questions now. What We heard about the one resource officer who didn't go in and then over the weekend there was three more deputies who all stood behind their cars and didn't enter the building. Now the sheriff yesterday was on CNN saying that those three guys weren't there. It was just the one resource officer. Hmm. Or or at least he couched it in, the investigation's ongoing. We don't know exactly the full details, so I'm not going to say one way or the other, but he's leaning towards my guys didn't do it. And I'm not resigning, by the way. And he's not going to resign. So all that's out there. He's saying it's actually a competing police department who is stirring up Coral Coral Police Department. I think that's the name. But they're, they're, they made the report that there are these three officers, and they're just stirring up trouble with the sheriff's department. Police departments compete? Yeah. This is strange. It's really that an, seems an, counterproductive. An, an, an odd but... development. So now the, the governor is going to put the overreaching uh, department that investigates all that type of thing in, in charge to try to figure out the exact truth of the matter. And, mm. And we'll just get conspiracy theories out of that, because that's how that works. Thousands of students and their parents returned to Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, Sunday, the first time they were allowed back on campus since February 14th. Grief counselors and therapy dogs were there to handle uh, 
for support of the students. Many of the teens and their parents wore maroon ribbons and shirts that read hashtag MSD strong in solidarity. They picked up their backpacks and books that they left behind in the chaos, spoke with their teachers who returned to campus on Friday. School will start again for students on, on Wednesday with a modified schedule and classes will not be held in the building where the shooting took place. That building is has plans to be demolished and rebuilt because you can't keep a building like that around. I, I don't know if I could go back. That would be so scary. Right. Or just, you know, just disturbing in the idea that you were oh, there yeah. and those feelings. Uh, other news, President Trump's approval rating has fallen back to the lowest level it's seen in, the pre- in his presidency in a new CNN poll. Uh, even with Republican support declining, <clears throat> excuse me, in the, uh, the poll conducted by SSRS on, from February 20th through the 23rd, just 22% of people under 35 said they approved of the president. So 22% under 35. So what can we attribute this to? Well, there's lots of things, but he says he got an overall rating of 35%, which matches that of a December poll, which reached the lowest point since he took office. His approval ratings also hit their lowest point among Republican respondents, with 80% saying they approved of the president, a slight decline from the earlier low of 81%. Conducted in the wake of Florida's uh, deadly high school shooting, the Mm. poll also suggests that Trump's recent ideas for gun control only got meager approval, with one-third of respondents saying that they support his gun policy statements. So people aren't necessarily jazzed about his idea to arm teachers. Possibly not. Okay. We'll see how that spins out here in the next few weeks. Uh, Other news, the president's personal pilot is on the administration shortlist to head the Federal Aviation Administration. Hmm. Trump has told a host of administration officials and associates that he wants John Duncan, his longtime personal pilot, who flew him around in the country on Trump Force One during the campaign, to helm the agency which has a budget in the billions and which oversees all civilian aviation in the U.S. One industry insider equates this to the Seinfeld episode when Cosmo Kramer used his golf caddy as a jury consultant. (laughs) That's right. And he convinces him to, uh, what is he, oh, I remember. We can't really talk about it. Oh, okay. Yeah. A senior administration official told me that comparison is completely unfair. That's the reporter kind of going, okay, I got two two different... uh, narratives here the source confirmed trump's uh, recommended duncan and that he uh he sat for an interview for the post for this job for the faa that source said it was he was impressive he's on the list because he's the he's the president's pilot but if he gets the job it won't be because he's the president's pilot Hmm. other qualifications this guy has let's see if this Okay. Makes any sense. John uh, Duncan, he isn't just a pilot. The administration official told me he's managed airline and corporate flight departments, certified airlines uh, from startup under FAA regulations, and oversaw the Trump's presidential campaign air fleet, which includes managing all aviation transportation for travel to 203 cities in 43 states over the course of 21 months. So, I mean, I guess it depends on what the the head of the FAA's responsibilities are correct other people running for it i think there's a senator up for it there's the guy that's now the acting director of the faa yeah you know so there's a guy that is kind of doing the job has been in the the faa for a while a senator which they do at times and uh, then there's trump's pilot who's done pilot stuff he's no stranger to planes let's just say right he has told people duncan told people when he used to fly trump around in his private uh, boeing 757 they'd often find themselves stuck on the tarmac with delays he'd tell trump that none of this would happen if a pilot ran the faa Mm. you know he was this for a job this is interesting (laughs) we we recently watched indiana jones and the temple of doom 
And uh, there's a scene where Sean Connery and Harrison Ford getting get into an airplane. And my wife made a comment that was kind of <laughs> it made doom? me laugh. What? Uh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. Uh, the Last Crusade. There we go. And Sean Connery says, you can fly. And Harrison Ford said, uh, yeah, it's the landing that I have trouble with. And my wife said, hey, it's just like real life. Yeah. The landing. It's the tough part. Oh. Finally, emergency dispatchers in Elk Grove and Sacramento counties in California are seeing an influx in false alarm 911 calls from an Apple repair and refurbishing center off Laguna Boulevard in Sacramento. Huh. Dispatchers say the call started in October 2017, and there's usually no one on the other line. We've seen these calls for the last four months or so, said the police dispatcher. We're able to see quickly where the call's coming from. So when we get one from Apple, this address will come up on the screen. They just kind of dismiss it. On average, Elk Grove police say they receive 20 accidental 911 calls a day from this repair uh, Apple repair facility. Wow. Roughly 1,600 calls since October. Oof. Which is, a take, of course, taking valuable seconds and time away from a possible emergency. Sure. The, uh, this is the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department. Their communication center is also receiving these phone calls, 47 since January. Dispatchers say they sometimes hear technicians in the background. Uh, to them, it sounds like people talking about Apple or devices or generally about maintenance and repairs. It could potentially have an impact on the service they provide for emergency services. Hmm. But uh, this is uh, Apple, of course, is like we take this seriously. We're working closely with law enforcement to investigate and cause, uh, define the cause and ensure this doesn't continue. But, you know, they're in there repairing phones. They don't know if it's the phones or the watches because they both have a, a setting for quick dial for emergencies. Yeah. So as they're repairing these phones, someone's tapping these and, you know, false dialing 911. Yeah. To the point where 911's like, Ugh. And they just kind of ignore Sheesh. it. What if there's an, you know, an emergency at these it's the facilities? the Apple store that cried wolf. That's right. You know, not that this has anything to do with emergencies, but I am starting to get a little fed up with some of these robocalls that I get on a daily basis that are pretending to be emergencies. Right. Like, your warranty on your car has expired. and Or they'll say, like, uh, this is your final notice. Mm-hmm. Dot, dot, dot of this exciting offer, you know, and they're getting they're getting more aggressive. They're getting more uh, they're they're acting more like bullies in their tactics, because now I'm getting the calls that there's no option to opt out. So they'll keep calling on a daily basis. So my wife said, well, just uh, tell them you want to speak with somebody. So I tried that. I pressed whatever to speak to a representative. And, you know, acted like I was interested. And the first thing I said was, I'm not, I don't want to get these calls. Please take me off your list. And do you know what they did? They called you back? They hung up. Oh, okay. They didn't say anything. Right. Click. Then hung they, up. Uh, they probably don't have to acknowledge that your statement happened if they did that. Oh, it's so annoying. I get the ones that are like, you have been named in a lawsuit. Please call us. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, I figured I'd have a more official Instead of a robocall, there'd be more of an official, either a phone call or someone yeah. would mail something or notification somehow. Not some robocall, like, you call this 800 number, you're in a lawsuit, and then hang up the phone. Yeah. It could be worse. It could be an actual person pretending to be a police officer. My yeah. mom had a call one time where they said that she owed this money, and if she didn't pay up, she, uh, she was going to be arrested. Yeah. And my mom said, all right, we'll send a, send a police officer over. 
There was one of those uh, type of scams I heard. Uh, it was on a news report. But the the thing that was interesting it was were were police. You know, you're you know either either your identity's been stolen or you need to pay a fine or something of that nature, and then instructed them how to get gift cards. Mm. And send them gift cards, and it's like the police aren't going to deal with gift cards. What are you right. doing? And people did it. Yeah. Oh, I was scared. I went down to the store and bought like five hundred dollars in gift cards and handed them over. I'm like, what are you doing? They're not going to ask for gift cards, and they're not going to ask for money over the phone like that. No. If they're going to arrest you, they're going to show up and arrest you. This is bureaucracy. They would bring you down to their office, sure. make you fill out the paperwork, yeah. try to interrupt your life as much as possible. <laughs> they're not going to do it over the phone. Come right. on. None of these, none of these offices have like a, you know online bill pay that works. Correct. I mean, my wife and I are trying to sign our son up to, for some uh, summer camp yeah. opportunities through the county that where we live, and they don't have online payment. You're calling them up and handing over credit card numbers over the phone. Like, come on, you guys get set. This is very basic nowadays. You set it up online. You have it all. You know, electronically, no, you have to do it all over the phone, and then they yeah. call you back, like, oh, this didn't work. You're like, ah. So I, that's how the bureaucracy in this country works. They're not going to be efficient. That's the right. scammers are much more efficient right. than the people they're trying to impersonate. Exactly. Yeah. So the, the first lot. sign is efficiency. You know it's wrong. The the calls that really make me laugh, though, I, I've been doing voiceovers long enough, and I've I've had enough dealings with other voiceover actors that every once in a while, I'll, rec- I'll know – the voice of the person that's doing one of those robocalls. Oh, right. Oh, it's like, oh, that's so-and-so. I kind of want to call him up and give him a hard time and say, like, can you stop <laughs> taking those jobs because I keep getting your calls? That's or funny. just pretend it's him personally calling you on the phone be like, oh, hey. Yeah. I got your call earlier today. Sorry I missed it. It never ends. And they're finding more and more ways to get us. Oh. <sighs> I don't even remember signing up for any of these lists. I guess the real uh, lesson is don't give out your phone number or your email. Ever. Because you're going to get calls for the rest of your life. Anyway, when we return, we're going to be speaking with our good friend Joe Cannon. We've got quite a lot to talk about, and hopefully he, uh, as our Washington insider, can help us make sense of all that's crazy that's going on in the world right now. When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. We've got our Washington insider on the phone. It's always good to hear from our good friend Joe Cannon. Uh, He was also the chairman of the Utah Republican Party from 2002 to 2006. And he is the CEO of Fuel Freedom Foundation. And uh, you can find out more info at fuelfreedom.org. Joe, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Jeff. Good so, to be here. So, b- before we get into all the heavy stuff, let's start on a lighter note. Did you get to watch any of the Olympics? Are you an Olympic fan? Uh, yeah, I'm an Olympic fan, actually. I was one of the members of the Salt Lake Olympic Organizing Committee. Hey, that's and, fantastic. Uh, I obviously kind of follow winter sports, although I have sort of a... Well, I don't know how weird it is. It turns out there's this growing, and maybe it's not even a cult following anymore, of curling. So yeah, I'm a huge fan of curling. Watched a lot of curling, and I, unbelievably, almost unbelievably, the American men won the gold medal. I yeah, it's impossible to imagine why does a Canada win a hundred percent of the time. 
Yeah. yeah. Curling and, is like bowling in, in Canada. <laughs> and so you're probably familiar with the, the doping that happened in the curling event, right? Right, yeah, the mixed, uh, the, the, the mixed curling, the mixed doubles, uh, the Russian, I guess. Uh, and why you would dope in curling <laughs> is completely not understandable. Oh. One of the reasons I, I kind of like curling is, okay, so there's zero chance I could do a ski jump. <laughs> zero chance that I could do figure skating. And zero chance that I could be competitive in curling. But at least with curling, I can imagine throwing that rock, you know, uh, sliding that rock down. Oh, yeah. And, at the, you know, why would you dope? Uh, I don't know. Maybe to improve their concentration. Who knows? But I don't know. It just seems like doping is the least beneficial in a sport like curling. That is a great point. You know, of all the winter sports, that's the one you're sitting on the couch, and you that's the only one you could possibly think, you know, someday I could see myself doing that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, Joe, a lot has happened since we spoke to you last, and uh, a lot of tragedy, of course, with uh, what happened in Florida. And, uh, yeah. you know, now that the—I don't, I don't want to say the dust is settling, but now people, of course, are, are trying to, in addition to trying to see what they can do to prevent something like this from happening in the future— People are looking around saying, where where does the blame belong? And, you know, the people are looking at the FBI. They're looking at the, the Broward County Sheriff's Office. What are What's your take on this and, and where the fingers are being pointed? Well, this is a, a particularly messy case, actually, for both sides, I think, both the, I'll call it the pro-gun side and the pro-gun control side, uh, because it seems to me that, uh, this is an exhibit A of a case that could have and should have been prevented. Yeah, and, you know, I don't know how many more signs you could have that a guy was going to that a particular person, a known person, was actually going to do something bad. A, so not just people around him knew it, but B, apparently a number of people told local authorities and federal authorities about this. So you have this walking time bomb that that was that, you know, was knowable and and foreseeable and using a legal term kind of sort of foreseeable. Then the other part of this is, you know, um the the pro gun people uh, often say, well, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And apparently there was at least one and maybe four yeah. Guys with guns on the scene. So every way you look at this is um, very, very problematic. You know, apart from the, you know, the not apart, but I mean, the whole tragedy of somebody being able to walk into someplace and start killing people. I mean, that that you know, that's a tragedy. But then, I'm, then I think. Well, I do think on kind of both sides, you know, everyone's going crazy about their side. And, uh, you know, one side's accusing the other side. And I think they're both right of, of politicizing this thing. Yeah, so, and it's, it's such a it's such a tough issue to, to tackle, too. And I mean, Joe, what what's the secret? What do we how, what do we take away from this and how do we make changes to the point that this is not going to happen again, or at least with not the frequency that that we've been seeing lately? Is it 
Is it going to happen because of some of the changes that President Trump is proposing? What What's it going to take? Well, I mean, I have a not very happy answer to that question. But even embedded in your question is kind of an assumption that there, in fact, is something that you can do. Yeah. Uh, and, the, and the problem is, is that it's sort of the problem of evil. It's the problem of mental instability. Uh, those, aren't, those aren't the same. But, but in fact, you can't make a law that prevents bad things from happening. Right. Uh, and, and so, you know, the whole idea is, oh, well, there's some kind of formula out there that can uh, either change or modify or eliminate certain kinds of behaviors, that's, a, that's hard. And there's not much historical evidence that, that you could do this. And, you know, and I don't want to really get on one side or the other side, but in fact, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of young people and old people are killed uh, every year in America. Maybe it's thousands every year in America uh, in you know, places that have very stringent gun control laws. I know the argument on the other side of that as well. People in Chicago get guns from people in Indiana, and, and that might be true. But the fact is, people who want to kill other people will find a way to do it. And it's a, and so it's, you know, it's a tragedy. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do anything. I don't want to be on record as saying you shouldn't do anything. In this right. particular case, you could easily have had better background check easily, and I think that's maybe universally supported, just a better background check would have, you know, stopped this guy. Better, uh, you know, preventative awareness could have stopped this guy. So there are things that could have actually stopped this particular tragedy from happening. Yeah. Well, time will tell. And, you know, Terry mentioned earlier on the show that Trump's approval rating has gone down even a little bit more. And uh, I mean, who's to say whether that's in response to the suggestions that he's been making um, in answer to this to the Florida shooting or if it's just because we're getting more of the same. But I mean, two of the two of the suggestions that he's proposing are, you know, uh, raising the the age limit from from 18 to 21 to get guns and then also arming teachers, which seems like a very touchy subject. Yeah, yeah, both of the well, yeah, the the raising the age it might help. It is true that a number of these shooters really going back to Columbine, uh, are, were underage. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, there's a certain kind of logic to saying, well, we expect guys, young men with guns, younger than 21, to go into Afghanistan and to go into Iraq and to go into all kinds of places right. with guns. Uh, so, I, I mean, it's, it, it's a hard, that, that's a hard one. Um but that's something that might that might work. I, I, I don't want to say work because this is a whole instrumental view of things. I'm not sure that you can root out the real problem causing somebody to want to wake up in the morning and plan and you know uh, mass murders. Not not sure that there's a an ultimate fix for that. 
Yeah. And, you know, the, the whole arming teachers seems like there'd be a, a ton of red tape. And, I mean, it's it's kind of scary to think if, if the people that have sought a career in law enforcement and who allegedly did not do what they needed to do in a timely manner, and that's their one job and they're being paid to do it, you know, can we can we really expect the teachers to act in a similar fashion when that's not their primary job? Right. Well, that's why this particular case is so difficult, because on all sides, on, on both pro-gun and anti-gun sides, you have reasons to question your own position on this. Like I say, this is this is uh, foreseeably, knowably preventable, A, on the one hand, and B, you actually had, suppose, you know, using the language, good guys with guns on the scene who uh, didn't act fast enough. Yeah. Well, Joe, let's let's switch gears here a little bit. By the way, uh, if you're just joining us, we're we're speaking with Joe Cannon. He's our Washington insider. He's also the CEO of Fuel Freedom Foundation. What's going on in California where Diane Feinstein is not being supported by her own party? Well, this is pretty emblematic of the of a nationwide trend, I would say. In fact, you know, I think we're going to talk a little bit later about uh, Governor Kasich and Kasich and uh, and his what you know what, what his view on the two-party system. But uh, if you look at a kind of long arc of history, and unfortunately, I'm old enough to remember a lot of these events. Historically, you had kind of a moderate Republican Party, a kind of a moderate Democrat Party, and sort of the party establishment. In fact, it was so established that people didn't even talk about it in the, in the you know, 50s and 60s. The establishment ran both parties. But that started to fray in the 60s. So not, not, not to get too boring here, but if you remember the Goldwater non-election of 1964 and the McGovern non-election of 1972, they both represented watershed marks in each party. So in 1964, yeah, Goldwater got destroyed. Uh, would, would have got destroyed anyway, but you know, remember this was less than a year after the President Kennedy was assassinated. Uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson was riding high. But what really happened in the 64 election is the uh, right edge of the party ousted the establishment part of the party. And beginning in 64, that very conservative part of the Republican Party has pretty much been in control of the primaries, uh, the Republican National Committee, and most, many of the state committees. Okay, fast forward not very far, but to 19, well, 1968. You wouldn't remember this, but but uh, it was there was a huge clash at the Chicago Convention between the Democrat Party establishment and people from the left, the Students for Democratic Society. There was a famous trial called the Chicago Seven. That was in '68, and then by '72, that set of party activists on the left took control of the. Democrat Party. So I know this is like ancient history, but this is all playing itself out today because each because each side, each edge of each party has gotten 
increasingly conservative or increasingly liberal with all kinds of litmus tests on on each side. So in the Feinstein case, you, you have the added fact that she is the oldest senator. She has said some, at least to the left edge of her party, some things that appear to be uh, kind of moderate. She was not like reflexively part of the resistance to Trump, for example. She said, gee, maybe we could work together. That seemed to be a flashpoint there. So, but in, and the other thing is, and in, in, you had a very attractive alternative to her, at least as far as the delegates to the California Convention, who were very left, left of center, left even of the mainstream Democrat Democratic Party. So you had what, what happened is since since uh, 2016 that Bernie Sanders' wing of the party has organized much, much more intensively in many, many states, including California. So they come to this convention with a you know, she only got like 35, 37 percent. Kevin DeLeon, a very prominent state legislator, I think got 54 percent. If he'd gotten 60 percent. He would have been the party's choice in the uh, primary. They wouldn't have prevented a primary, but he would have had the party endorsement. And he's running, you know, on the left edge of uh, of the party and running to the left of Feinstein. So it's it's very it's very interesting. The left is getting more left, and the right is getting more right. Now there are shades around both of those things that are that are important. That. Anyway, that's that's kind of well, Joe, what I think is happening in California. Is this? I mean, does this kind of go along with the pattern that we that we usually see in politics, where you know people support a certain party or candidate until things don't aren't going the way that they want, and so eventually, you know, the other party is supported. We see it a lot with the presidency. Or is this more along the lines with what John Kasich is saying? that we're beginning to see the end of the of a two-party system? Well, I mean, I don't want to say never, but the two-party system in the United States, notwithstanding that it's not mentioned in the, in the Constitution at all, but began after the first term of George Washington, you had the development of, of two parties. Two-party system has been very resilient in the United States, very, very resilient. And uh, it's hard to see how that ends. I mean, basically, we have four parties right now. We already have four parties. Just two of them are Democrats and two of them are Republicans. And they fight within themselves for party control and for individual candidates within those parties. So, so, but could that break up? Yeah, we've had, we've had, uh, Bill Clinton owes his election in 1992 to uh, uh, oh Ross Perot, who took away about right. you know a, a very big chunk of Republican votes. So Clinton actually in, in neither election did he get 50 percent, but and in both cases it was third party candidates that that sapped uh, the Republican side of things. That in itself caused a lot of reflection on the part of the two Republican parties, I'll call them, saying, well, maybe maybe this isn't the right way. And actually, you can argue that that, that internecine fight on the Republican side ended up giving us Donald Trump, a very substantial part of the Trump base, 
is uh, relatable and maybe in some cases the same as the Perot base. Um, so uh, will will Sanders emerge? Bernie Sanders, the, the Bernie Sanders wing emerge? In some states they will because one of the things that's happened is you've got a set of purple states, but basically blue states are getting bluer and red states are getting redder. So uh, kind of a counterexample to all this is in a couple of weeks, there's going to be a special election in Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania uh, 18th congressional district. You've, that was a, that's a district that Trump won in, but historically it has lots of Democrats. Well, the Democrat candidate in that district, a guy named Connor Lamb, is running on a platform saying he won't support Nancy Pelosi because she's so toxic in red to purple areas. So you've got kind of the inverse happening in a number of it, and that's that's the most prominent current example, but that's actually happening in a number of races. It's defined red state Democrats trying to veer away from the left edge of their party to try to get elected. And the same thing on the Republican. You've got... You've got a Republican governor in Illinois, which is kind of an anomaly, and that candidate is running to the left of the party generally, but trying to soften the edges of, of, of uh, the, the, I'll call it the Trump effect. So it depends a lot on what state you're in. California is so safely, reliably Democrat, they can afford to have these center-left, far-left debates. It's not going to change very much. Yeah. Well, Joe, we, once again, we really appreciate your time here on the Matt Townsend Show, and we hope that the next time we talk to you, we have some happier news to uh, to discuss. But uh, before we go, Joe, um, what's your take on Billy Graham? He just passed away. He's, he uh, has done quite a lot to improve the lives of others and even in politics with, with some of the presidents throughout history, including President Donald Trump. Well, yes. Uh, Trump just uh, announced a while ago, I guess, that he's going to attend the funeral. Billy Graham, a pastor, some people say the, na- the nation's pastor is going to lie in state in the national capital. Uh, by the way, uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth knighted him in 2001. For me, not again to get, get all bowed down to my age, but I, he's been a fact of my life since I had memory in the 50s. remember watching him on black and white television, you know, growing up, growing up in, well, partly in Utah and, and in Southern California. So he's been around all of my life, not just my adult life, and been a very strong president, both for Democrat presidents and Republican presidents. Uh, I think he goes back at least to Truman, maybe maybe Roosevelt. But, you know, uh, it was a galvanizing uh, uh, a preacher. And his, you know, he had this huge effect on, on America and to some extent, even the whole world. He, he did crusades all around the world, in Latin America as well as in, uh, as in Europe. So, no, it's a, a national treasure. Absolutely. And apparently his funeral will be on Friday in Charlotte, North Carolina. 
And yeah, he lived to a good, ripe old age and, and definitely had a wonderful influence on the lives of so many people, and especially in politics, as we've been discussing. Well, we've been speaking with Joe Cannon. He is our Washington insider, and once again, he is the CEO of Fuel Freedom Foundation. You can find out more about that at fuelfreedom.org. When we return, we are going to continue the discussion here on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. You know, we've been uh, arguing, or should I say discussing, a very hot topic on the Matt Townsend Show for as long as I can remember being on the show. And uh, that topic is millennials. And I think the, the heated discussion comes from whether or not I am indeed a millennial, or if I am one of these splinter groups that's between millennials and uh, we already defined it. Defined this. Zennials, We're right? Zennials. The, right? the term that somebody made up because they have a complex. <laughs> Zennials. Somebody that is so offended that they could be associated with the group of millennials that they created their own group. Correct. Zennials. I think once Generation Z finally gets a hold of things and, and finally gets clearly defined, you'll be able to once again come back to the millennial fold and realize we're not that bad. It's the younger kids so, that are the problem in so America. Even all the bad things that I've said about millennials, you'll you'll still welcome me back with open arms? Yes. Wow. Because we're the most accepting generation. That is that something is? good to be said about millennials. I don't so, want to say bad things about millennials. I just mean just denying that I am indeed a millennial. Okay? You're, off, you're off by like a year <laughs> with most <laughs> estimates that you're off the millennial generation by a year. Just just establishing the facts there. Um, so this is out of the UK. Uh, some research there. It says a third of millennials wish they had grown up in their parents' era. Hmm. Despite the technological and social progress in recent decades, Brits of all ages across all sectors of society no longer believe today's young people will be better off than their parents in the future. Uh, Economic issues such as owning a home, job security, funding, retirement were all major concerns among youngsters. Uh, the research from the uh, Resolution Foundation found. The organizations uh, which aim to improve the lives of low-middle-income families, that's kind of what their focus is. That's why they're looking at this. Only 23% of those polled said young people could hope for a better standard of life, and their proportion of people who think their children will have a better standard of life than them has halved in the <clears throat> excuse me, space of the last 15 years. So in other words, the idea that the next generation is going to have a better is falling off. That used to be something that was very common yeah. com- coming through the 50s, 60s, 70s. Now that, that es- expectation has dropped off as economics and you know different well, news those, that gen- those generations you just talked about are the parents that these young people wish that they had been a part of. So yeah. when they thought that their kids were going to have it better, they were wrong. It says, so graduates and high earners are the most pessimistic about the future. Among those with a degree, 57% believe young people will have a worse standard of life than their parents, while 55% of people earning more than 55000 probably around 65000 per year, shared those views. So you, you hit a certain uh, income level, 
And it seems like you you're uh, you get very pessimistic about the future for some reason. See, it's interesting because I would say that I I there's a part of me that would really want to live when my parents were my age, but for totally different reasons. You know, I like the charm of the fifties and the sixties. But at the same time, I'm not really willing to give up a lot of the conveniences that my parents did not have. There's some – we talk about watching older movies where all of a sudden they stop and they get on a payphone. You're like, what? There's (laughs) Miami Vice, right? There's this scene from Miami Vice where um, the band Genesis plays a song and they debuted it on this show. It was something you never did before. You don't debut your music on a primetime television drama and they did. And the scene – you can watch it on YouTube – they stop at a payphone so that one of the cops can call his wife and have this conversation because they're going to go do something, you know, incredibly dangerous. Sure. And he doesn't know if he's going to get out of it. And he stops at a payphone. So you're watching. You're like, what is he doing? What? Oh, right. No one has. Was this Don Johnson or yeah, the other guy? It was Don Johnson. Okay. I couldn't remember the character name. Yeah. Because then Crockett was the other guy. So Sonny? See, I don't even know the names anymore. <laughs> yeah, it is crazy, though. It's like, what is that mysterious so you see that, box they're talking about? And then you're into? like, wow, it's so much easier just to pick up a phone. Now, there's a show on right now called Gotham, mm-hmm. and they only use flip phones on the show because yes. they don't want it to have a specific like anchor to time. Yeah. Right? They don't want to put out smartphones because then what that does is, well, we could do half the stuff on the show on a smartphone. You know, right? So they they purposely have technologically kind of handicapped the show to create plot and let it let the show breathe a little bit. Breaking Bad only used flip phones, but that was for an entirely different reason. Well, yeah, they're easy to dispose of, they're hard to track, <laughs> yeah, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So younger people are now so anxious about their prospects that many now say they would rather have grown up in an earlier time, despite the advances in technology and social economic progress. One in Oof. three millennials born between 81 and 2000 agree that they would prefer to have grown up when their parents were children compared with 32% who disagree. So, Jeff, you're denying your millennial, you know, official millennial membership. So we're not going to discuss you. Cole. Yes. Would you have rather grown up in your parents' time? Would that have been better, do you think? Well, my dad did buy comic books for only 12 cents a pop. That's not bad. And gas wasn't much more than that. And... (laughs) Things things were cheaper. My dad got a, a pretty new car-ish mm. whenever he turned 16, and I was driving one that was older than me at the time. Okay. Um, I, I, of course, wasn't driving a car at 16, so we could look at that too. <laughs> Go ahead. There are economic advantages, it seems. But also, when you talk to the lower and middle income chunk, right, my dad my grandparents – I come from a line of farmers and hardworking people, and that's how they got to be, like, mediumly incomed. And I kind of like the fact that I can go to college and not have to work as hard to get also maybe just a meager income, but at least I don't have to, like, wake up at six and milk cows. So That's a right. great point. I'm good. But a lot of people will say that helped build the character that they use later in their life to establish True. who they were. Yeah, I'm good without character. Okay. 6 a.m.'s early, man. You got to be careful, though, because with some of these other economic benefits, you also have to take into account, like, oh, there was a pretty unpopular war around that time that you would have had to have been a part of. So, Among older generations, just 15% say they would rather be a young person growing up today. Hmm. So people who experienced youth 
in the time they experienced it looking at today, like not so much. I'd rather do it. You know, I was good when I was younger. And I, I'm kind of that way just mainly because I don't want to experience all that again. Yeah. I don't want to be young and have to deal with figuring out life and I, all the social anxiety I had to go through. I'm great with where I'm at. I mean, I, I, I will admit that if I could have gone back maybe a decade and gone to high school during the 80s, oh. I think that would have been a cool time. Really? Instead of the 90s. Just because you think it's all a big movie. No, I just no, you love do. 80s music. You're just music. thinking of whatever 80s high school movie. You're like, that would be awesome. And that's not how high school was. High school was just high school. No, I know. Just with bell bottoms. Don't get me started on The Breakfast Club. Anyway, we're going to continue the fun here on The Matt Townsend Show. However, BBC News is up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson. I'm uh, I'm in the batter's box for Dr. Matt today, who's out sick with a sore throat, a.k.a. Enjoying the time with his son that he hasn't seen in two years. Which means they had to pull me up from the bullpen. That's right. Cole is our closer, and he earns every dollar that he makes. We're excited for baseball here on the Matt Townsend Show. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't even mean to go into a baseball tangent there. But, uh, I, you know, it's funny because as, as big into baseball as I am, I've never been to the spring training, which is going on right now. Well, I grew up in the north where they leave from to go to the spring training sure. cactus leagues and grapefruit and leagues. Yeah, it's and, not even that far away. It's just down in Arizona. Yeah, when you're right? here, that'd be pretty cool. Um, I never did it when I was a kid because that's where they were going from. <laughs> so some would argue that that means that I'm actually not a big baseball fan, that I've never been to spring training. I don't agree with that. Um I just – I've never felt the need to pay to watch somebody practice. You're just not a true fan. You're, you can be a fan, but you're just one of those casual observers. Jeff. Now, one one thing that I enjoy doing at baseball games is eating the nachos. In fact, oddly enough, I just had a dream about this last night. That's true. So if Getting you go the down helmet there, with full of nachos, you know. Can you get nachos and hot dogs and all the normal amenities of a baseball game? I'm sure you can. But the point I was trying to make was <laughs> – Although I might not want to watch, uh, pay to watch baseball players practice, I would pay to maybe watch uh, the nacho geniuses at work preparing nachos for me. That sounds about good to me. That's you're not a nacho fan, Cole. Oh no, I'm a nacho fan, but I'm also a, a baseball fan. Okay. <laughs> wow, that sentence was loaded with. Uh, Allegations. Yep. Hmm. Okay. Well, Terry South, our wonderful producer, is hopefully he's given us some news of what's going on around the rest of the country that's maybe not baseball or nacho related. I can confirm that is definitely the case. Okay. <laughs> President Trump has voiced his support of giving drug dealers the death penalty, according to uh, Axios. The president has outwardly admired Singapore's policy to execute drug dealers for months and reportedly said that drug dealers are as bad as serial killers and should get the death penalty. 
While Trump is said to personally believe that more forgiving methods of drug reform will never work, he admitted that the likelihood of getting such a harsh policy approved by the American system is very slim. Kellyanne Conway, who is the head of the White House anti-drug effort, told Axios that Trump's proposal is more nuanced and would only apply to high-volume dealers who are killing thousands of people. Policy changes are reportedly on on the horizon, including bringing more anti-drug education into schools. In Singapore, they are shooting these people in the streets. Oof. And uh, I, I, I heard that they, they were offering at one point, they were proposing maybe a bounty system. So oh, like, wow. Like, so, I mean, police officers, uh, they're not arresting, they're just shooting at drug dealers. Now, that's extreme. Yeah. The president has said he likes that. He has tendency to kind of <laughs> like what they call strongman tactics, right? Okay. Now, the, the, the idea, though kind of rings true in the sense that we we prosecute someone who murders somebody Mm -hmm. and they go to they get executed right the death penalty is enacted in the state that's on the table a drug dealer who's dealing out say like fentanyl that kills and you kill like tons of people but we don't we don't treat them on the same level as someone who murders somebody so So that's that's the question the president's having i think the way he's presenting it is we're just going to start killing these people is you know extreme but the, the the idea should we treat a drug dealer and not not just a drug dealer, but like as they're referring to him, a kingpin, someone who's like bringing all this stuff into the country and right. then, then distributing it all out through a network, should they be held as accountable as say a murderer? I well, know. I mean, but then you got to ask the question that there are manufacturers of products like cigarettes and alcohol that also kill people, right? And uh, ooh. Yeah. yeah. Then, then you start going down a road, and I don't know if people yeah. want to go there. So yeah, he he wants to uh, to step up the uh, penalties for drug dealers is basically what it comes down mm. to. He chooses very descriptive language, and then people get scared. Uh, a majority of Americans say the politicians' view on gun control and gun ownership will have an influence on their votes in November. Come the midterm elections, a Marist poll has found more than eight in ten Americans, eighty-five percent, say a candidate's view on gun control will affect their vote including 59% who say such a position would be a major factor in their vote. When it comes to what Americans want to see done about mass shootings, more still support tougher gun laws. 71% of Americans, including 58% of gun owners, say restrictions on gun ownership should be tightened, up from 64% on the same poll last October. Just 23% of Americans say gun laws should remain the same, while 5% say the laws should be less strict. So that will be an issue. Yeah. Whichever side you're on, that's what's going to be top of mind, I guess. The mayor of Oakland has warned residents after she received intel that the Immigration and Customs Enforcement agents were planning raids in her city. In an extraordinary intervention, Mayor Libby Schaff said that she was passing on information not to panic our residents, but to protect them. And she and said she'd reach out to leaders and immigrant communities to make sure people can prepare for the incoming raids. Oakland City Council, which voted last year to end cooperation between local police and ICE, later barred any city official from colluding with ICE in any capacity. Schaff said that she was uh, willing to prepare to go to jail to defy Trump's crackdown on immigrants, referring to the president as the bully-in-chief. Oh, my. And remember last week, the president was uh, talking about pulling all ICE agents out of the state of California. Yeah. And this all has to do with the idea of sanctuary cities. And if someone who is here illegally but has done nothing illegal other than their presence in our country, should they be arrested? Hmm. And the cities feel like if they're not breaking the law other than they are here illegally, 
but they're you know they're adding to the community. They're they're you know, they're not you know causing problems that way. Why should we arrest them? Why not focus on the people who are breaking laws? Yeah. And the other side is well, in fact, the fact that they're here is breaking a law. That is also true. So that's kind of the conflict there. And the mayor in Oakland is uh, probably going to see some uh, pushback for that because she's. Yeah. Yeah. She's maybe taking that a step too far. We'll see. If she's willing to go to jail, she might end up in jail. We'll My see. goodness. Uh, finally, one of Britain's biggest car insurers has admitted increasing premiums for drivers who apply using a Hotmail email account. <laughs> Certain factors will naturally increase the cost of a car insurance premium. These include where you keep your car overnight, what type of neighborhood you live in, whether the area is known for car, for, uh, car crime or not. Other factors such as your job title, age, driving history, and previous car-related offenses can also alter the cost of your premium. I think these are things people understand, right? So Hotmail? Explain. They don't, though. That's oh, what's what? funny. Says investigators from the Sun newspaper found that changing the email address used for insurance quotes from Gmail to a Hotmail caused the car cover price to shoot up by as much as $43. That's like saying people who root for the Knicks mm. have a higher premium. Well, maybe it's maybe it's warranted. I'm not sure. <laughs> the insurance company said email domains, the part after the at, right? So at mm. whatever yeah. the domain is, affects how risky it deems motorists. It says certain domain names are associated with more accidents than others. That is crazy. Okay. The other thing they don't take into account is that my my Hotmail or Yahoo or that kind of old style email is my junk email. So I'm if I'm just like signing up to see what my premium is going to be, I don't mm-hmm. want to give them my good Gmail. Right. I just well, give them my junk one. And you can you know those arguments are there. The problem is these insurance companies are sitting on these massive piles of data. Yeah. Hmm. They know that this type of person drives this type of car. This type of person. Maybe has uh, you know will spend more on this type of a product. Yeah, you know? and the more data they gather, the more specific they can get. And I bet you they can show that if you have a Hotmail account, that you're more you know you maybe you get into more accidents. But I'm still a Gmail kind of person. I totally I understand. Just I'm just saying they're, they're looking at the percentages. When I I went in from the car I have now, it's a mm-hmm. four door sedan. I got it so I could put. Two kids in car seats in the back seat. That's mm-hmm. the whole point, right? Before I had a pickup truck, a four-wheel drive pickup truck. They told me when I when I applied for insurance with the pickup truck, because it was four-wheel drive, right, there's a greater chance that you're going to take that off-road and you're going to get into an accident and it'll be higher premiums huh. because you're going to have an insurance claim because you broke your car driving off-road. Yeah. And I went, okay, that makes sense. You know, I, I got it. Then I got the the uh, the four door car I have, and the it was even higher. The insurance was higher, and I already had this conversation. It was huh. the same insurance guy. So I'm like, you told me a couple years ago, four. Uh, I had my four wheel drive truck, and that's more reckless in behavior because you're going to go off road with it. Yeah. And now I have a four door family car, and it costs more. And he goes, that's the way the numbers come out. I'm not sure how that works. That's two years ago, Terry. Like, so. Yeah, and I'm like, and the car I drive, and I've talked about this on the show, has been described to me because the, another person I know has the car, and he yeah. said he looked up and saw some surveys that it's known as a grandpa car. <laughs> 60 and up are the normal people who buy this car that I purchased. Really? So I'm wondering, is it because you get older, reflexes slow down, maybe the insurance company thinks there's more... 
Or maybe so statistically, since you went from I mean. something that had four-wheel drive and now yeah. you have something that doesn't quite have those capabilities, they think you still want to get your thrills from having four-wheel drive, but the vehicle you now have is not equipped I'm to just do that. I'm just going to Racing in my exactly. Okay. You're obviously the kind of guy that right. wanted four wheel drive at one point, yes. and so now you still have those urges, but now with a car that can't handle right. it. I feel like that describes my car, yeah. the grandpa car. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, 2004 Toyota Camry Solara. Yeah, two or, doors, or at least not not one at risk for right. you know crazy behavior like yeah. maybe a four wheel drive vehicle. But that's kind of the the judgments they make. The, your car, when you go in and say, this is the car I have to an insurance company, they go look at a set of data that shows this is how that car, according to our, our big pool of data, this is the tendency for that car to get into accidents. Yeah. Right? Or maybe it's the color. Or maybe, you know, whatever. Did you buy a new car versus a used car? There's probably, you know, factors for that. And they all work that into the data set to come out with your number. And according to this company in Britain... If you use Hotmail versus Gmail, they're going to charge you 40 bucks more. I love that we got a confession out of Cole, too, that he has what he calls junk email accounts for what he uses as, I assume, things like grocery store applications, credit card applications, and HBO free trials. Right. Yes. Yeah. I heard, that sounds about right. I heard some people <laughs> discussing this in, this in the idea that maybe it shows that maybe people who use Hotmail are older – Okay. Because you get your email address and then you just use it. You Maybe you don't think about, oh, I need to get a new one. Maybe I need to update it. Hotmail came first. Gmail came later. Right? So maybe you just stuck with what you had before and that maybe is a sign maybe of your age is what they're assuming. Maybe that's why it's higher because they think maybe you're older, reflexes are slower, you have a better chance of accidents. I so don't know. they need a new term for this because it's not really sexist. It's not really... It's not discriminatory, uh, but it feels that it's way. It's not racist. Is, yeah. it, is it like maleist? Maleist? I'm not sure. Hmm. I've but, never been discriminated against based on this my is email how, account. This is how more and more insurance is based on not knowing, right? They don't yeah. know if you're going to get into an accident, but they're assuming maybe down the road. And so they took all the factors of who you are as a person, feed them into their computer and the massive data sets to come back and, and judge whether you are trustworthy to drive See, while they insure you. it sounds less like data and uh, more like throwing darts at a board and seeing what it, it lands It on. feels that way, but if I, I think if we actually see how much they know about us, okay. it's very intrusive. I feel like there's potential for an outside statistical consulting company to arise here that also crunches this data, but actually tells us how to game it. Oh, wow. So... To get around if they have things. all this data, someone out there should be able to crunch it also that's not affiliated with the insurance companies that says, hey, if you buy a, a boring gray two-door hatchback car, yeah. you will it will be cheap oh, for wow. your insurance. And if they tell us that, like whatever that combination is, then how someone long, could sell that information. How long till they're sued out of existence because that's undermining the entire insurance a, uh, industry, basically. Are there, are there laws against undermining the entire insurance No, but you can sue agency? them. You can oh, try okay. to come up with some approach so, to a lawsuit, yeah. How true, is it, how true is the rumor that people with red cars get more tickets and have higher insurance rates? People – I don't know if anyone's actually tested it, like – but, but I know that's what's said. I know yeah. there's some police officers that say, well, it just stands out. You see the red car before the blue one because it's so bright. Because I'm going to knock on wood. My car is red, and since I purchased it, I have not received a single uh, moving violation. Hmm. 
Does that leave the door open to potential parking violations that you may or may not have gotten uh, by saying moving? I have not had a parking violation either. Uh-huh. You're knocking not on wood. This this table has no wood it's in it. The it's the closest all... thing to me that I and that knocking is... on it just makes all the microphones echo. So don't rattle, rattle, rattle. Yeah. Well, I think the echo is good luck too. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. Anyway, uh, how about some empty news? Does that sound good? Yes. This is Cole. I want to tell you you've you've been making some confessions on the show here today. I I this is less of a confession and more. Indicative of the time period in which I grew up. Okay. But when I was going to junior high and high school, there were a lot of kids that the style that they had was to wear really baggy pants. Yes. And some that were like way low that they were just walking around holding them up the whole time, which is – you know, a good indicator that maybe you need to get some pants that are more fitting, right? Or a belt, which has also been invented. Exactly. To kids today, instead of wearing the baggy pants, a lot of them are wearing like the skinny jeans, pants that are really tight. But listen to this. There's a proposed state law in South Carolina that is looking to establish monetary funds and community service as punishment for people who get caught Sagging their pants. Those hooligans. Do you think this should be against the law to have saggy pants? I think they might have statistically found that people with saggy pants are more likely to commit other crimes. Yeah, maybe this study was done by a car or an insurance company. Or Isn't that a really, really grumpy old guy that doesn't <laughs> like seeing saggy pants people. <laughs> this was done by the Whippersnapper, whippersnapper data, data Center. Uh-huh. The bill would make it unlawful for a person to appear in public wearing his pants. And his is in quotations. I love how they're just assuming it's going to be hmm. a male. Now that's sexist. Okay. Uh, sagging his pants more than three inches below the crest of the top of his hips. Okay. Gotcha. Those exposing Seems skin enforceable. or undergarments. Mm-hmm. Violations would be a non-criminal offense, the proposal says, but violators would be subject to fines. On the first offense, a person could be given a fine up to $25. Mm-hmm. On the second, the fine would be up to three hours of community service and a $50 fine or both. Mm-hmm. On the third third time, any time thereafter, the fine would be $75, six hours of community service or both. Representative Wendell Gilliard of – he's uh, from Charleston – says he first sponsored a similar ordinance while in city council 10 years ago. So this has been going on for a decade. He's working on it. We have to lead by example, Gilliard says. It is necessary because it's not getting any better. They don't really specify here what the problem is. I think I support the $25 fine. If they're going to take that $25, take them to JCPenney and buy them jeans that fit and then send them back on their way. (laughs) I think the punishment should be they have to pay the $25, the $50 or $75 fine or whatever it is. Get that money taken out in pennies and have to wear – hold those pennies in their saggy pants. Until they just fall down. 
well, and, or until they get tired of holding them up, and uh, so know. it gets it gets heavier and heavier as so it goes. It turns right. into a punishment. You turn the that seventy five dollars into seventy five dollars in pennies. Yeah, it's not going to be pretty. Anyway, one more quick one before we go to our guest here. Uh, we talked about this about a week ago or so. Uh, about the chicken shortage at KFC. Listen to this. KFC lovers are being urged not to call the police over the fried chicken crisis. Why not? (laughs) The fast food chain closed half of its 900 UK outlets over the weekend after operational issues with its new delivery from DHL. For those who contacted the police about KFC being out of chicken, please stop. Officers in Manchester pleaded. Police in London joined them in tweeting the chicken shortage was not a police matter. KFC tweeted that more than half of its restaurants had reopened on Tuesday afternoon. But the crisis looks set to continue with hundreds of outlets remaining closed while others will have a reduced menu or shortened hours. Is KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken, is out of chicken? If that is not an emergency... I do not know what is. That is a great point. Although you would think that people would start calling the farmers, maybe? Or KFC itself. Or the manufacturers of this chicken. Or, better yet, how about DHL? How do I get in contact with the colonel? Now, maybe... Surely he has an answer. You could just go straight to the course. The problem is... The turnover in that job is insane. This is probably why. Have you if the seen... colonel can't keep a tight ship and get the chicken to the chicken place, right? get well, him out of there. I mean, the the position just keeps changing over and over. It seems like every commercial you watch, there's a different colonel. So they need to get – they need to oh – gosh, they need to get things situated over there. That's what the real problem is. Stability is what I the mean, company needs. Now it's Reba McIntyre. But before that, it was Jim Gaffigan and Norm MacDonald. They, they need to just – they got to pick a colonel and go with it, and maybe that would solve some of these chicken issues. I think you nailed it. Nailed it, Cole. Mm-hmm. Wow. Starts at the top. See, we are figuring all sorts of things out on the Matt Townsend Show today. And when we return, we are going to talk about how being good could actually be good for your health. How about that? When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show. Well, you've heard of the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That uh, is more than a catchy phrase, if you can believe it. It's more of a catchy phrase if you live it. Love and good works are something that uh, everyone wants, but it turns out that those who give it more live longer, stronger, and healthier lives. What? Well, in his article, It's Good to Be Good, Dr. Stephen Post shows why this is the case, and he joins us now from Stony Brook, New York. Dr. Post, uh, thank you so much for being on the Matt Townsend Show. Well, thanks for having me, Jeff. It's nice to be in touch with you. I am very intrigued by this article that you wrote. Um, In in the article, you mention some different uh, scriptural passages, and another scriptural passage talks about how some people call good bad, and some people call bad good. And I'm wondering what you define as good. What do I define as good? 
whoa, well, that's a big question, but pretty much um, moving away from a preoccupation with self and the problems of the self and, of course, selfishness and greed and uh, just uh, missing all the beauty of contributing to the lives of others. So it's this shift in all of our traditions, I think, from a real narrow self-centered focus to uh, a respect and and, uh, an admiration and a love for others just as others and a willingness to be uh, helpful to them in ways that can take many different shapes from compassion and empathy to uh, kindness to uh, small helping behaviors to forgiveness uh, uh, and so forth, etc. So, Stephen, I want to get into some of the benefits, both psychologically and physically, of being good. But first, I, want, I was hoping that you could kind of give us a condensed version of, of the, I'm seeing these 12 good-to-be-good studies and some of the findings that you had from those studies. Yeah, well, for sure. I've been doing this for quite a while, and <laughs> it's been a great, a great delight to see it catch on so widely across America. Uh, I mean, really, when you come right down to it, although I don't want to use the language widely uh, because it's a little hard sometimes for people to get a handle on it, but it really comes down to love of neighbor, and love is, is when the the well-being and the happiness of another is as real to you and meaningful to you as your own. So you're still in the picture, you know, the the, the eye is still there, but it's a deeper, uh, a more flourishing eye because it takes into account the world around us. And in general, it's a scientific generalization, and that doesn't mean it's completely foolproof. But in general, people who live uh, in meaningful ways for the well-being of others as well as self get all kinds of benefits. They do tend to live much happier lives. They tend to live more creative lives. They tend to be more resilient when there are losses and disappointments. They tend to be healthier in a number of categories, and they also tend, on average, to live longer. <clears throat> doesn't mean that's always going to be the case, because you'll some, sometimes have a younger person who has a fatal diagnosis or whatever, uh, or maybe gets in a car accident. Uh, but on the whole, uh, if you can live uh, this kind of life, uh, it benefits you, and it, and it gives you a protective halo it follows you all the way across your life course. So how does that work exactly? I mean, you you did mention outliers, people that that do get sick, even if they're are you know they're very good people. How how does that work physically? How does being good to other people improve your health in in most of these cases? Well, here you go. So it, um, you know, when I came to Stony Brook uh, from Cleveland, I, I'm, I'm basically a Clevelander, by, by, by the way. Um, <clears throat> I came here uh, nine years ago, and uh, consulting with some managed care systems, uh, we did a national survey uh, in the beginning of 2010, looking back on 2009, and we asked 5,000 randomly selected Americans, did you volunteer in... 2009. Answer, uh, 41% of Americans volunteered. How much time did they put into it? Not a a tremendous amount, on average about 100 hours. And so if you break it down, that might be a couple of hours a week. And then we asked some very simple questions. 
did volunteering make you happier? 96% of people said yes. Did it make you feel physically healthier? 68% said yes, meaning that they felt more robust, more energized, kind of like getting off a high-carbo diet or something like that. <laughs> uh, and uh, in terms of uh, recovery from loss and disappointment, um, yeah, that was really important. Uh, 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 77% uh, uh, said yes. 73% said lowers my stress levels. Uh, 77% improves emotional health. That's really pretty amazing. And, and when you think about it, um, if you could have any medication uh, sold at the pharmacy that had that level of effect, you'd be a billionaire overnight. But you don't have to sell pharma because we have it actually within us if we just move in the right direction and realize uh, that there are all kinds of benefits for us, and they're not just, you know, tit for tat calculation type things. Then that, in fact, is irrelevant. The main point is that we just feel better, more gratified, more meaningful in life when we make these kinds of behaviors a uh, a regular practice. And there's a whole neurology of it now. There's a part of the brain. Uh, it's it's called the mesolimbic pathway. Don't write it down, listeners, <laughs> please. <laughs> I, I wouldn't want that, but but it's the part of the brain that's associated with feelings of joy and and um, happiness, and it doles out uh, dopamine, which is one of the several major uh, happiness chemicals. There's um, uh, a um, a strong set of studies showing that when you simply put your mind just just put your mind uh, you know imagine yourself helping someone else like a like that Rockwell picture of the golden rule you know yeah yeah put your mind on that and and it turns off the destructive emotional pathways associated with bitterness hostility anger rumination and all the studies show that those kinds of negative emotions, when they're just left turned on for a long, 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 long time, they're very destructive of, uh, of health. And, you know, it's interesting, too, because I think about opportunities that people have to serve. And I, I thought of people that uh, serve in like a church capacity, you know, which is typically happening on a Sunday. And for me personally, that's when a lot of my... Uh, craving set in is over the weekend. And so I guess in a real sense, if I'm out serving other people on a Sunday in a church capacity, for instance, I'm actually eating less of those foods that are probably really harmful for me, um, which is interesting because we we just have this example of uh, Billy Graham passing away recently, somebody who was very much uh, invested in serving and helping other people. And he lived to be 99 years old. So you've got to take care of yourself if you're going to take care of other people. Yeah. And, you know, by the way, the, 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 the longest-lived subpopulation in the U.S. is the Seventh-day Adventists. They have a big medical center out in Loma Linda, California. Yeah. And what's interesting is that they do a tremendous amount of, of faith-based service but they also have, you know, fairly strict dietary laws. Um, they don't drink. They don't even have coffee. 
uh, they're careful about what, uh, what what they eat. They view their themselves as stewards, as caretakers of their bodies, because they think their bodies are really, in a lot of ways, a kind of gift, if you will. So uh, it's very powerful stuff. And and I would say that uh, uh, you know all kinds of studies uh, point out that folks who uh, worship regularly, uh, whether it's synagogue or church or whatever it might be. Uh, they do tend to have lower depression rates. They tend to, to live a little longer and so forth. And that literature has been out there for 20, 30 years. But the thing about going to uh, Sunday service is that there's lots of good role models, lots of generous, wonderful people, and they are there to show you hospitality and be the people who kind of pass the torch your way. There's organ- organized activities to get every generation out doing something in the community that makes sense. And uh, it could be going to the nursing home to visit folks who are deeply forgetful. It could be a you know, trip to Appalachia to uh, do habitat stuff. But the point is that, that you're, you're hearing about the golden rule uh, and you're, 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 you're around people who, who take it seriously and, and you're also getting opportunities uh, to to actually practice, and so in that sense, a lot of the benefits of uh, that kind of Sunday activity may well be related to the uh, to the helping others that goes on. There's a spiritual quality to it as well, but but it's certainly related. That's so interesting. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Stephen G. Post, who is an international speaker. He's a best-selling author, and he's the director for the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics at Stony Brook University. He's also the author of Why Good Things Happen to Good People. And uh, Dr. Post, I was I was hoping we could switch gears a little bit. So clearly there seems to be a correlation between doing good things and having good things happen to you. Now, what if... What if you were not somebody that maybe you didn't have a lot of time to go out and volunteer, or maybe you just chose not to go out and volunteer? However, you're very giving financially. You made a financial contribution. Are those types of people going to experience the same effects as those people that are actually going out and doing the good themselves? Uh, Not quite, but they are. So uh, there are wonderful studies, even one from the National Institute of Health uh, in in the laboratory of a fellow named Jorge Mole, who's a major neuroscientist. So he basically uh, took people in off the street, and he hooks them up to a pet device, which is like a bathing cap with little electrodes on it, and it tells you what part of your brain is active. And he gives every, each person independently a menu. And on the menu, there are a lot of line items, things that you could contribute to financially. Um, the YMCA, the Alzheimer's Association, your local hospital, your alma mater school, when somebody gets a kind of eureka moment, they say, you know, I like to contribute to this. Um, and then there's some sort of fake money, and they do some sort of exercise in the laboratory. Uh, what happens is <clears throat> that part of the brain that I referred to earlier, the mesolimbic pathway, lights up. So... Um, Absolutely. If, now, of course, I suppose if you were not being sincere, if you were being uh, cynical uh, and jaded about giving, that might not be the same effect. But if you're just thinking in a normal way uh, about helping others through writing a check and so forth, um, that has benefits, um, which uh, are very important. Now, it's not quite 
as extensive as the uh, um, the regular activity of actually getting out there into the world and and having face to face contact. There's more biology there. There's another chemical called oxytocin. It's a hormone of empathy. They call it and trust. That gets that gets rolling, and there are some immunological uh, activities that are boosted. So there's a lot to be said for the actual doing. And, of course, you're also getting out and exercising. And, you know, a lot of people are couch potatoes. A lot of people, you know, myself sometimes, yeah. too, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, the, the actual getting out and, and being uh, involved physically, I think, is, is, is an added extra. Okay, now what about people who help others as their profession, like teachers or doctors or, uh, you know, we use the example of Billy Graham, where that's their profession? Yep, so Billy Graham, being a minister, uh, you know, there are a lot of wonderful studies about ministers and burnout. Uh, uh, You know, uh, sometimes when you're so caring and you're so highly motivated— uh, to help others, uh, you forget to draw a few boundaries, a few limits, and then you can just uh, uh, neglect yourself to the point where people begin to feel like they're just going through the motions. They begin to feel kind of, uh, it's just a routine. It loses meaning. It loses depth. And then the next step uh, can be burnout, which includes degrees of depression. So uh, there are whole uh, uh, psychological consulting programs for uh, clinicians, for uh, uh, ministers, uh, for teachers who just really have done so much. The key thing there is, no, you don't need to be volunteering and worrying about your two hours a week because your whole life is a gift in a way. And what you need to do is be able to uh, take the time to take care of yourself because you'll never take care of others well if you don't do that. And that means, you know, smell the, smell the roses, go out to the beach, walk on the mountaintop, uh, do a little skiing in Utah uh, uh, at, uh, at, at one of the great mountains. Uh, um, but basically, you've got to have some balance in your life, and that's really important. You know, it's interesting. Uh, a few months back, it seems we had a guest that talked about exercise and how likely people actually are if they were to go into their doctor's office and if their doctor were to write out a prescription for them to exercise, a surprisingly high number of people will actually go out and fulfill that. They'll go out and exercise. They'll do what their doctor orders them to do. Is there a way – what do you think – how many people do you think would be likely to go out and do good if they went into their doctor's office and the doctor prescribed them be good? Well, I think the doctor should have a little pad that says, Rx, good to be good, follow the golden rule. If you go out to San Francisco in the Bay Area, there are quite a few geriatricians. Those are regular doctors who mainly – focus in on older adults in their practice. They actually do have things like volunteer match uh, available online. They have all kinds of flyers and local opportunities. Uh, You can connect and you can 
do things for others because believe it or not aging well is not just about you know receiving and you know i mean meals on wheels is a great thing uh but uh, it's also about encouraging um older adults to be out to be active uh physically and also emotionally in making a difference and that could be uh, you know, helping with literacy programs. You, you can go to assisted living centers now around the country, and um, there's always a wing or at least a big room where the older adults are, you know, uh, weaving baskets or putting together T-shirts for the next local walkathon, and they're getting involved. The, the studies are amazing in terms of their their longevity. When they're involved in those kinds of activities, after you get away from all the baselines, you know, and you're moving away from this purely passive hospital sick model of a nursing home into a community where people are really socially engaged in that positive giving way, they're less depressed, they're happier, they're using less medications, and they're living longer. So what's wrong with that? And and as far as adolescents go, you know, there's a huge problem with uh, adolescents uh, and uh, um, alcohol abuse, substance abuse, and so forth, We've been studying for seven years an award-winning program that we have uh, called Helping Others Live Sober uh, .org, uh, at the Cleveland Clinic in Case Western, and we've determined very clearly that the strongest predictor of whether a young person will stay away from those kinds of behaviors is whether they have a, a positive purpose in life. If they want to do something with their talents to help others, that's the key indicator, then they will not only be uh, protected from negative behaviors like, you know, criminality and, uh, uh, and, and uh, uh, aggressiveness and so forth, but they'll actually um, um, uh, they'll be happier, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll show lower depression rates, uh, and if you follow them for a long period of time, they're, they're just flourishing in important ways and so getting getting the young people started earlier and 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 building this into uh, adolescent psychiatric clinics is absolutely important if you look at the great heart clinics around the country there's an organization called mended hearts how do you like that i like it a lot <laughs> yeah and that's people these are people who have had you know big heart operations uh and you know they were really scared at first and they went through it and how are they managing and coping now with their lives? Because, of course, they're always now slightly vulnerable. Well, they're going into the clinics, and they're helping new patients. They're counseling them. They're, they're visiting their homes. They're helping them adjust to things. Uh, you know, you look at um, uh, AA. You know, there are lots of members of AA around the United States. That 12th step of helping other alcoholics is so amazing. So in one of the great studies, which my colleagues did, it showed that if, if people go dry at point one, and then you wait one year, okay, if they're in the high quartile of AA helpers, meaning they're, you know, uh, visiting other alcoholics uh, in the prison or in the hospital, if they relapse or they're just opening the door, they're sponsoring, they're making the coffee, they're giving testimony, if they're high quartile helpers, they have a recovery rate of 40%. If they're low quartile or low fourth helpers, they have a recovery of about 22%. So basically what that means is that you double the likelihood of recovering from alcoholism, at least in that context, if you're a high helper. 
And I think this this is very important. Uh, we you know we use this principle with cancer survivors. We even use it with with people who have chronic pain, uh, Jeff, because. When, you know, of course, obviously there's limits on that because some people have, you know, they have so much pain that they really can't be active. But if they're able to manage it and they go out and they just spend an hour, an hour and a half, whatever they can handle, uh, you know, um, helping others, it gets their mind off the, off the experience of pain. And a lot of the experience of pain is really about intention or attentionality, they call it. So there's nothing better to get your mind off pain than just being bright-eyed about the joy you're bringing into another person's life. So absolutely, I think that, that, that this stuff should be recommended, uh, you know, uh, at least by the doctors. Uh, and, and, and that's why that article I wrote, Rx, It's Good to Be Good, so, you know, it, it brings together over, over 200 studies and, and basically says, you know, we need to realize that from, from a public health perspective, uh, this is one of the best things we have going. Well, Dr. Post, we are so grateful for your time here on the Matt Townsend Show. And you've sold me, you've convinced me that there maybe there's something to being good and, and uh, having it improve our health. His name is Stephen G. Post, and he's the author of the article, It's Good to Be Good, or Rx, It's Good to Be Good, as well as the book, Why Good Things Happen to Good People. So go on out there and do some good. It just may help you live longer and be healthier throughout your life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Back to the Matt Townsend Show. As you know, each day we like to share some empty news, some news that you're probably not hearing on all the major stations or channels, but uh, that you might find interesting nonetheless. Don't confuse it for empty news. Right. It's empty. It's news. full of substance. And uh, here's one that might tickle your funny bone, but also make you feel good. Um, how would you like a, a lifetime pass to the Florida State Fair? Sign me up. Really? Well, provided that I was already in Florida. Okay, that's a good point. We're always talking about different fair foods here on the show, and they're always so unique, and we always ask ourselves, would we – could we actually bring ourselves to eat that unique particular dish? Unique and tasty. Um, sometimes, yeah. All the time. Like deep-fried bubblegum, I, I think I might stay away from that one. Anyway, uh, all you have to do apparently is give birth – at the Florida State Fair. Which at, is, at the fair. Yes, this okay. is what happened. Newborn baby Lyric Love Robinson received a unique gift for Valentine's Day. Tickets for life to the Florida State Fair. So I guess it was the baby that got the lifetime pass. Well, he's free for the first 10 years of his life anyway, right? Where her mother gave birth to her right on the midway on February 9th. Kesha Martin and her husband, Laveron Robinson, were watching their children ride rides at the fair when Martin's water suddenly broke. I was just like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to have my baby at the fair, Martin said. That's the only thing that was coming through my head. I just wanted her to be healthy. So good for her. And it worked out. And her baby. All right. Lifetime pass to the Florida State Fair. So I guess I'm I'm past the point where I could sign up for that kind of thing. I wonder if this is going to start a new trend where women will go to places that they really want to frequent 
um, and try to deliver their babies there, like Disneyland. Mm-hmm. Maybe I can get a lifetime pass at Disneyland. No. Not going to happen? No chance. Maybe a movie theater? They'll give me free passes for life? Maybe. If you if you delivered in a movie theater, you might need to close the movie theater. Maybe if you deliver in a hospital, you can get free passes to the hospital for the rest of that your life. That is definitely not true. In Aren't fact, it? they'll send you a bill. I've really? heard. Oh, man. At least it's happened to us three times. <laughs> so anyway, we're going to take a quick break. When we return, we've got one more funny MT news story for you here on the Matt Townsend Show. We've been talking a lot about millennials today on the show, and we it's no secret that on the show we've also talked a lot about some of these challenges that millennials and even kids even younger are taking on at school and with each other. We've had the Tide Pod Challenge, the Salt and Ice Challenge, and even the Cinnamon Challenge. It seems like every few weeks there's a challenge teens are trying out just to become a viral sensation and get their 15 minutes of fame. The latest challenge, which unlike other viral challenges, isn't dangerous, uh, but it is posing a problem for workers at a craft store chain, Hobby Lobby. Poor Hobby Lobby. Teens are heading to the craft store floral aisle to show off their photography skills. The walls of faux flowers are serving as a backdrop for the glamorous shots. ABC News said that Kelsey Maggart, a professional photographer, is the one who started the latest challenge in January. But the trend is proving to be a challenge for store workers and other shoppers who are having to deal with the photographers crowding the aisles and not putting the floral props back when they're done, Business Insider reported. This one's a little bit fantastic, though, because I've seen some of these pictures. And <laughs> the, you really? The goal of the challenge is to make it look like you're not just in a Hobby Lobby, but in a professional studio, and some of these photographers are doing a pretty good job at it. Don't you think this is just another indicator, though, that kids are just too bored? Or do you feel like it's an indicator that kids are actually pretty creative these days? They are so creative. They're taking a little and making a lot out of it. It could be worse. They could be swallowing Tide Pods. They could be. Oh, boy. Don't do that. If we've said it once, we've said it a hundred times. Don't eat Tide Pods. Go eat something delicious like nachos. Mmm. Don't get me started. We're going to return with the fun here on the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson once again filling in for Dr. Matt. Didn't want to make it sound like he's always gone, but I'm filling in this third hour in addition to the first and second. I'm just going to move on to the next idea. Uh, We've also got Terry South and Cole Wissinger here, and we're having a great time. We've talked about the health benefits of being good, which I thought was very interesting that Your life could be longer if you do more service. Um, We are also going to be talking about screen time coming up here in just a bit with our guest, Anya Kamenez. And we've talked Olympics. We've talked food. 
Actually, we talk. We always talk food. Yeah, we do. And uh, Terry, would you be happy to earn a lifetime pass to a state fair? No. And why? I've only been once, <laughs> and um, they're just, it seems like a place where they try to sell me hot tubs. That is true. So that I'm is one like, of the many things that they. Huh. I don't. Like I can see the prize pig and maybe hear a pitch for a hot tub, and there's your state fair. And I don't want to discourage anybody from going to state fairs, but for me personally, I always feel kind of depressed when I'm at a state fair. Mm. I can't explain it, but uh, it doesn't really stack up. I, I I should say, to be fair, I grew up going to Disneyland quite frequently. So nothing right. can really compare to the magic of you're just, Disneyland. You're an elitist, we know. They might not have all the deep-fried foods, but they do have the churros mm, and sure. the turkey legs, which I don't even think I've actually had, right. and the pineapple Dole Whip. Mm. Which is kind of gross. What? It's basically just Come straight sugar. on. It's and delicious. It's actually, it's actually too much sugar. It's In funny. one sitting, it's really unhealthy. It's funny because they that is like the longest line at Disneyland yep. as far as concessions are concerned. It just wraps all the way around that tiki room. But now it's starting to creep up in other places. Like you can get it at Macy's here down the street. Yep. You can get it at uh, Menchie's, which mm. is a frozen yogurt place. Every once in a while they'll have it. Yeah, the whole pineapple flavored whip is not something that's going to be tough to replicate. So, no, but yeah. it's actually, I mean, it's either the, I get it. it's the branded, legit but pineapple Dole Whip or they're just ripping it it's off. Just toss in some corn syrup and some food coloring and also, freeze it. Also, longest and... line at Disneyland is not selling me in the slightest. No, That seems actually, a reason to stay go, away. That's when you know it's good. You no. guys That's are... when you know there's a lot of people who think everyone else thinks they know what they're doing and they're really not. You guys are food Grinches. I'm, I'm going to say it. Disneyland Grinch, maybe, <gasps> but not a food Grinch. Wow, he's offended. I'm a Disneyland the goal. paying for ticket Grinch, because that's pretty exorbitant. But anyway, let's move on with the other news that's going on around the rest of the country. Terry South. Broward County Sheriff Scott Israel said Sunday on CNN that he will not resign despite allegations that multiple deputies under his command did not enter Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, when they should have during the Valentine's Day mass shooting. Israel previously said one deputy assigned to the school was suspended without pay and then resigned because he never entered the school to protect students or confront the shooter. Now the Coral Springs Police Department has accused other deputies of delaying their entry. Israel says that remains under investigation and any report claiming that it is known that those deputies did not enter the building are untrue. He also pointed to the as it says here, the Coral Springs Police Department is just trying to cause trouble. This is most surprising to me that you have a, another. Apparently, you said it's a competing police department. I didn't know that they competed with Not one competing, another. Competing, but you just like think... the, it's a neighboring police department. You have the sheriff's department. You can see this. The sheriff is usually a county situation, right? And then you have the Coral Springs Police Department, which be a city situation. Maybe there's some jurisdiction stresses going on. People trying to say this is our place, not yours. Tell and so they start pointing fingers at each other, and now you got people saying they're just causing trouble. You know, Television's told me the police departments sometimes compete with fire departments in like right. softball yeah. games. But yeah. like, but. What I know about police departments is that if you're a cop, you stick up for other cops. You don't throw them under the bus. So this is... Well, uh, huh. This guy's saying that this police department might just be doing that. Wow. 
Uh, deputies, he says, deputies make mistakes. Police officers make mistakes. We all make mistakes, Israel argued. But it's not the responsibility of the general or the president if you have a deserter. Israel also addressed the warnings his department received about the shooter before the attack. He goes, I can only take responsibility for what I knew about. Hmm. So this comes to the question of if you are the head of an organization and somebody in your organization makes a horrible decision, should you have to pay for that? It's a good question. In many cases, yes. You see it all the time with CEOs and it, resigning. Right. And, I mean, we just had the case with the Olympic gymnastics team and that doctor that did the horrible things, and that was at Michigan State, and the president of Michigan State stepped down. Right. Did the president of Michigan State have anything to do with that? Not sure, but it was on her watch. She stepped down. I guess the difference is that was kind of an ongoing issue. This was an isolated incident. This is 23 different incidents, plus the training of officers to go into buildings is what you're supposed to do, not wait I outside guess. if that's the case. So it comes down to is, is his administration at that sheriff's department, is it bad? Is he the problem? Does he need to go? Many people think so. There's also <sighs> a, uh, a local representative there in that area of Florida who is calling for him to step down. And The whole this, thing is a mess. Yeah, and the sad thing is sometimes the guy in charge takes the fall, like maybe rightly so, but they need to make it look like they're doing something. And yes. so they blame the guy. At the that's top. the other end. Yeah. So that's some of the yeah. discussions going Especially on. Especially with this high profile of a thing. The governor of Florida is is launching an investigation with their state investigative bureau to get to the bottom of what actually happened and to figure out how to fix it. So yeah. that's kind of where that story mm. stands. Tentative plans for Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto to make his first visit to the White House to meet President Trump were scuttled this week after a testy phone call between the two leaders ended with an impasse over Trump's promised border wall, according to U.S. and Mexican officials. Mm. The Mexican president was eyeing an official trip to Washington later this month or in March. So this was the story came out late last week. Um, but both countries agreed to call off the plan after Trump would not agree to publicly affirm Mexico's position that it would not fund the construction of a border wall that the Mexican people widely consider offensive, he said, or said officials who spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss the confidential conversation. One Mexican official said Trump lost his temper, but U.S. officials described him instead as being frustrated and exasperated, saying Trump believed it was unreasonable for the president of Mexico to expect the president of the United States to back off on his crowd-pleasing campaign promise to force Mexico to pay for the wall. That Mexico <laughs> will never pay for, but Trump's still not going to back off. Wow. So we're at this impasse. Now we're not going to have a state visit by our neighbor. Won't he just, you know, withhold aid? I don't know. Hmm. It's just, it's trivial at this point, but it's ongoing. I, hmm. It's interesting. I mean, there's so much that that goes on since so much that's happened since he was elected that I yeah. often forget about this. Right, and actually, the money's on the table for what he wants, like eighty something billion. Uh, he wants a lot of money, and it's like, wait, we're, didn't was Mexico going to pay for it? This is going to be now, like now they're saying uh, they're going to pay for it in other ways and taxes and you know uh, paying money to come across the border to work and those kind of things. So I'm not sure where it stands at the moment, but it seems kind of. A dumb thing to uh, block another leader of another country from coming here because you're not going to back off on something there's no way you can enforce. And, you know, if it happens, there's no way it's happening during this presidency. No. Wow. (laughs) It's fun. So that'll continue. Another announcement from uh, the White House. Donald, President Trump's plans for a White House-backed military parade are beginning to take shape. The president has directed the Department of Defense to organize a parade that would take place November 11th, Veterans Day. According to the unclassified uh, February 20th memo, 
written to National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster. The memo, which was summarized to political by a senior administration official, was sent from McMaster to the Secretary of Defense. It says that Trump wants uh, Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, to brief him on concepts of operation for this event. The memo also states that the parade route should begin at the White House and into the Capitol. Estimates have pegged this parade at $30 million. Mm. Wow. $30 million? Yes. So the president said we yeah. need to do this for the uh, – I forget the exact term. but he Team wa- morale? No, he wants it for the minimal – a minimal amount of money but at the same time represent what he wants. He wants lots of flyovers. He wants tanks. He wants what he saw in France when he was there sure. with, with them on, on the parade they had. He thought that was a great uh, you know, showing of force. He wants, wants that in the, in the nation's capital. What they need to do, since I am not a fan of parades, mm. is just hire Molly Shannon and Will Ferrell to do the commentary. Then I would tune in. Okay. Then they wouldn't have to spend $30 million. With the disclaimer so people don't get so mad this time <laughs> like they did with the Rose Bowl. Uh, and finally, uh, this is from a website called sapiens.org. They do research into humans, Hmm. hence the name, right? Yes. It says they looked at 168 cultures, and they found couples kissing only in 46% of those cultures. Really? Yeah. Societies with distinct social classes are usually kissers. Societies with fewer or or no social uh, classes like hunter-gatherer communities are usually, usually not. I think they tried to do one at a sporting event, but the results were a little skewed because there was the the kiss cam. Yeah, the kiss cam is kind of weird. For some, kissing seems unpleasant, unclean, or just plain weird. Kissing is clearly a cultural, a culturally variable display of affection. At least ninety percent of today's cultures have kissing as uh, of one type or another, but the majority of it is parents kissing their kids. Far huh. less is known about patterns of who kisses romantically and who does not and why. There is uh, uh, historically like when the first – it said in the article they were talking about when the first explorers ended up on the Isle of Tonga mm-hmm. and they saw a, a European man kiss a European woman. The people were just grossed out of their mind. Like, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. It's funny because it always comes up whenever there's a, a show or movie about aliens because aliens yes. always find it weird too. Right. So was this – they would. Was this in private or in public? I did not say. It just said as a as a cultural practice. Yeah. If it's common for this 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 sign of affection, then it's not like it said. It was 168. I think they said 168 cultures. They found couples kissing in only 46 percent of them. It's so, interesting because you have plenty of people that are totally comfortable kissing each other in private, right? But they don't want to see people kissing in public. Yeah, keep the PDA to yourself. We don't need to have that out there. My 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 boy is just like we were watching. What was the movie Wonder? Yeah, over uh-huh. the weekend, and there's yeah. a point where the uh, older sister kisses her boyfriend or something, and my boy's like, "Oh, they're gonna do it! Oh, they're kissing it!" And he's like, "We're looking at him like, what are you doing, man?" Oh, goodness. so gross. Why has this movie got that in it? Fast forward. And I'm like, wow. That's why they had to give it the PG rating. That's it's right. pretty racy. PG. No, it's a, that's a nice <laughs> movie. Finally, uh, finally, number two. Let's do that. Uh, youth sports. Yes. Your kids aren't playing any sort of youth sports, right? Soccer or anything no, like that. No, 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 no. They're signing up for soccer, actually. You'll find that there is a level of uh, sporting parent. Mm-hmm. Is quite competitive. Yes. Even at like the littlest age of soccer. Yes. Where it's basically pointless, whatever's happening on the field, because the kids don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But kids, parents get really competitive. So this starts out, it says there's a fine line between a passionate sports dad and an abusive one. 
and Missouri lawmakers might make crossing that line a crime in the near future. State legislators are now considering passing a bill that would provide youth sport referees with strict legal protections from assault by parents and coaches. Should the bill pass, Missouri will become the 24th state with laws that outline what constitutes assault against a sports official. Hmm. The real news here yeah. is 23 states already have. I know. <laughs> yeah. That was my like, wow. is, Yeah. This is kind of dear to my heart because when I was 11 or 12, I quit Little League. I had never been on a first place team. I quit the team because I the pressure was just getting to me. I was so terrified of the parents and the coaches that I quit. And then, of course, that team that I quit went on to win first place. Of course. I don't know if that was because of my departure. The fact that you weren't there. You were dragging them down. Um, It's interesting. (laughs) Wow. Gosh, I don't know. When I started playing Little League football, I was around 14 years old. Yeah. And we had a very contentious game. It was really close. There was a controversial call at the end. And some parents waited and found the referees as they left the field. And they went up and started yelling at them about – they wanted to question, what were you seeing? How could you possibly miss this? And then it turned more and more as they didn't get the answer they wanted, right, which is the yeah. ref saying, oh, I, I messed it up, blah, blah, blah. You know, the ref just was like, hey, we got to – that was the game. Let's move on or something like that. And the parents were not happy, and the parent went on and punched the referee. Wow. And so from that I point— I think that counts as assault in all 50 exactly. states. Exactly. Yes. That's why I'm like, I don't—but I, I think they want to—in Missouri and these other states, they're making it more because uh, they want to protect that element of youth sports, and we're not going to turn this into a melee just because someone called a foul, right? Yeah. In my situation, the next week, the entire league had uh, security— like they, they went to a, a security agency and brought in security people to stand around fields and escort referees to their cars in the parking lot. Wow. From Little League oh, parents. Oh, my goodness. It was nuts. My, my mom's like, are they serious? She goes, if it – I mean, I get it. It's bad, but we need this. And they did. They, they put those people on the field so yeah. that the referees could get to their car and not be assaulted. See, I guess a positive way to look at this would be – and not necessarily parents punching referees, but – isn't it true that – and we don't really like to make blanket statements on the show. But, but go right ahead. Isn't, yes. it, isn't it true that for the most part, we wouldn't have a lot of these professional athletes playing at the level that they're currently at without highly, highly competitive parents behind them whispering in their ear, telling them that you will become this professional player? In and, many cases, yeah. Yeah. I, I believe that. I really, really believe that. I feel that way about – Olympians, too. Mm. But again, I mean, that that can't be true in every case. I'm sure there are cases where you have someone that's self-motivated self-motivated and doing it themselves. But when that parent, you put all that money into it, because a lot of these leagues now, they're so expensive to go ahead and and get your kid in traveling leagues and to have them play. I mean, and and your people are getting into these leagues. It's like fourth grade. Before fourth grade, you're in competitive soccer or competitive, like a traveling basketball team type of thing. And yeah, I, we have friends that are their their daughter plays softball and they're playing all over the place. They're in different states one weekend over here, and they're hey, watch my house. We'll be in Colorado. I'm like, what are you going to Colorado for? Yeah, some weekend tournament with their daughter. I'm like, what? and it's just the money and all this. And so when someone does something that you feel is obvious on the field that just hurt your child's chances mm-hmm. to maybe go play for a championship or get some award or something, 
you're mad and you go try to take it out on that person and now 23 states, soon maybe 24 will have laws to make that more of a penalty other than maybe just a basic assault. Don't these parents know that the easy solution is take the lesson that we've learned from pretty much every sports movie ever made. When you stop taking the game so seriously and you just have fun with it, that's when things turn around. No. Think of every sports movie you've ever seen. I could I could say my, that. My kid's going pro, and you can't just take a nonchalant <laughs> sp- attitude. You have to be serious sports at all Sports movies also tell us that the the team that's empirically better at the sport also always loses the big game yes. because the plucky underdogs always get it. Think right. of the Mighty Ducks and the Big Green and Little Giants. But what did they do to deserve that? The other team was better, bigger, faster, stronger, trained more. But listen, we just spoke with our guest earlier that talked about doing good makes you healthier, stronger, and maybe even it even makes you uh, better at sports. Angels in the outfield also help when you're trying to beat a better team. Now, I will say there's one exception where I, I watched uh, Friday Night Lights recently for the first time. Not really an uplifting movie, uh, kind of a depressing movie, and... You think, you keep waiting, okay, now their coach is going to give them this rousing speech. He's going to tell them, just go out there and have a, have a good time. No, they were business the whole time. All the parents didn't uh, let up on their pressure, and the team lost. So, you know, even when you go outside of the conventions of these some of these juvenile sports films, maybe there's something to... Uh, to being mean and, and losing. But hmm. I think in real life, there's more to being mean or highly competitive and winning. Yes. But that's not uplifting. We want the little giants. We want the mighty ducks. But it just never happens that way, unfortunately. Like you said, those teams are not likely to win. When it's just about being fun and, oh, who cares if the kid ran in the opposite direction? Who cares He's if running they... in the opposite direction. They're, they're going to lose that who, point. Who cares if they ran from first to third without hitting second? People that care about sports care about those things. Oh, boy. Anyway, now we're going to tackle another issue that's facing our kids. Screen time. Is it just a problem for kids or is it also a problem for adults? We'll tell you the answer when we return. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. You know, half of the parents in America say their school-aged children spend too much time with screens. However, it's hard to escape technology in today's modern world. So our task as parents is to help our kids balance screen time and real life. Here to share the art of screen time is Anya Kamenetz, author and mother of two daughters. Anya, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you so much. This is an issue that is on my mind a lot, as I'm sure it's on the minds of parents everywhere. And I'm curious to know... How much? First of all, how much screen time are kids exposed to today versus how much they should have? Or should we really be playing or uh, putting a hard and fast number on it? 
Um, I think the numbers uh, can can be surprising and sometimes scary. Uh, when children are, the young children from zero to age eight are watching their parents report about two hours and 19 minutes a day. I say watching, the majority is videos. Hmm. Um, once kids get their own devices uh, later on at the end of, you know, middle school, high school, they're kind of looking like adults. And that means, you know, potentially up to 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day on, on devices or near devices. Um, and, and teens, of course, are multitasking quite a lot as well, and, and they do get that from the grown-ups. And so you're talking not just TV time, but we're talking YouTube, things that they're looking up on phones or tablets. That's right, games, texting, apps, and increasingly homework as well. Really? Okay. So, are you, are you talking about class time or the just the homework itself? Because I, there, we're seeing a lot more screen time in the classroom as well. That's right. Kids are encountering uh, screens usually in preschools, and they are using them uh, on a daily basis uh, all the way through. And then once you get up to middle school, a lot of schools are handing the kids laptops as well to take home. So, this is something that it's very hard for parents to get a complete view on because it is coming at us from all angles. It's interesting because in some ways I wish that I had access to some of these forms of technology when I was their age. Um, and I'm curious to know what the, if you could talk to us a little bit about the effect of digital media on children. Currently, is it is it skewing more toward the good or is it skewing more toward the bad? Well, I think it's important for all of us to recognize that, yes, we use digital media for purposes. And when kids are using them for their intended purposes, they can learn, they can absorb pro-social messages, they can uh, experiment with new kinds of skills that are going to be important for their futures. So we shouldn't lose sight of the positive that that screens can deliver. But it's also important to keep in mind what the uh, effects are that we can see and observe in our kids from too much screen time. And uh, those fall into some buckets. I kind of weigh it in the book around where the strongest evidence lies, and that is in the realm of sleep, of weight, um, and to some extent, some kinds of behavior issues. So, you know, the most important number one rule is to try to keep screens out of the bedtime, out of the bed bedrooms and out of the bedtime routines because we've seen that it can directly interfere with sleep, and that's really important for kids developing brains. Yeah. Okay, so you know, at the very beginning of this interview, you said something really interesting, which was kids are starting when you add up all the various forms of screen time that they have, their behavior is actually starting to look more like the parents' behavior, which kind of leads me to believe that, ooh, gosh, maybe I've got a problem as a parent in the amount of screen time that I have. So let's talk a little well, bit about the parents and their their screen use. Well, I mean, my book is about a family balance, and that's very deliberate because parents have devices in their hands almost all the time. I mean, that is, that's pretty much across the board. I've surveyed over 500 families, and only uh, less than 3% of them said that they were strict about their own tech use around their kids. And so what are our kids getting from that? There is a documented interruption in, um, in family conversations when there's something like a television on in the background, and there's starting to be research about the interruption in conversation with the phones. And what that can mean is it's actually harder for our kids to understand what we're saying and to learn. Um, and when you have a toddler, for example, who's trying to learn new words, uh, if they're constantly being interrupted, it's, it's, a, it's a drag on their development. And so it's important for parents, I think, to take a look and not to guilt monger because we all have our realities, but to figure out, you know, 
could you be doing a little bit better in in focusing on your kids when you're with them? Yeah. And let me just give you a little scenario here and you can tell me what what impact this might have on the kids. You've got a mom or a dad taking the kids to the playground. They're sitting there. Uh, you know, you would think they'd be watching their kids playing, just make sure they're safe, having a good time. But they're actually just sitting there on their screen, flipping through Facebook or doing their email. What impact does that have on the kids? Well, we can look at it in two buckets. Uh, one is that there actually was a research study published on this that documented a rise in emergency room admissions for young children when parents um, were just getting the new iPhones. Wow. This is across, yeah, it was amazing. They compared two counties. One of them had 3G access and the other one didn't. And so they could see this rise up to 10% for the youngest kids only when their parents were watching them, not when, not when they were with um, coaches or teachers. Uh, so distraction can have a real danger to it. Um, on the other hand, you know, what we want to look at is, uh, you know, just that the idea that you're spending time with your kids because, you know, well, you want to be around them, you want to play with them, and you're missing out on those opportunities. Um, that said, of course, you know, there's always going to be times when your kids need to play on their own and you need to, to do what you need to do at the same time. It's just about being judicious about interruptions. Yeah. So I guess when you look at an adult's schedule each day. It's not too surprising that they have so much screen time because so much of their work it takes place looking at a screen or and you know typing on a computer that sort of thing. Um but I'm curious to know what does screen time look like for kids versus when they're a teen? How does that evolve? Well, that's a great question. Uh, younger kids are spending more of their time watching videos, pretty much like they did when they were uh, before in the television era, you know, passive video watching. Of course, it's different because it's on demand. So there's a little bit more um, of a compulsive dynamic to it. Teens are getting into social media. And with teen boys in particular, they're often getting into video gaming, um, which can have a social or a chat component. But that makes it very, very powerful because, you know, teens are so motivated to connect with their peer group. It's a huge part of growing up. And with the devices, they have virtual access all the time to their friends. And so there are great aspects to that. Kids are very social. Um, they're able to, you know, communicate and, and, and depict themselves in various ways. On the other hand, they don't have the opportunity to leave the drama behind. You know, it used to be you had, you know, some issue at school and then you could go home and home was like a safe haven. Now, if there's some drama going on, you could literally be texting your friends all night long. And so that's something that a lot of parents, it sneaks up on them, I think, because there's such a big divide between, you know, the time before social media and now now how kids, many kids are so wrapped up in it. Yeah, and it's just it's it's kind of a different form of of peer pressure like you said, you know, instead of and this is still happening of course, but you know, kids being pressured into drinking or or doing drugs things like that. It's just kind of an unspoken form of peer pressure where I need to be I need to be texting. Well, this person has a phone, they're texting. I need to be on my screen all the time too. That's exactly right. And so it's important for parents to be, you know, be in contact with their, your friend, your kids, friends, parents as much as possible. You know, make sure that you're all, uh, you know, on the same page about screen time rules. It can be really helpful for your kids to have a curfew on the phone. Um, even if they complain about it, uh, a lot of times teens will tell you that they secretly 
like the fact that they sometimes have to be away from the phone because it is a lot of pressure. You know, there's things like, for example, on Snapchat, which is a lot of kids are using, uh, there's a streaks feature, which means you get a reward for chatting your friend a certain number of days in a row. And it can be really hard to give that up. I've heard of kids handing over the phone to their friends when they go to summer camp so that they can keep the streak up while they're gone. Wow. Wow. My goodness. So yeah, it it really is a form of peer pressure. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Anya Kamenetz, who is an author, author of the new book, The Art of Screen Time. And Anya, I just want to switch gears a little bit here. Um, I'm curious to know, what are some of the strategies that parents have at their disposal to help kids find that balance uh, between digital media and real life? Well, I think the first thing to do is really look at your family and look at your kid and look at where screens may be uh, interfering with the kind of values and the kind of uh, home life that you want to have. And so, you know, a lot of parents choose to set screen limits by priorities or by occasion, which means basically, you know, you, you want the kid to make sure they have time playing outside and that they finish their homework. Um, before they turn to the screens, and also screen-free family dinners, of course, keeping them out of the bedroom. But with all these limits, you know, with, it's really, really important to catch, get your kids buy-in. And that's why I also advise parents to look at their own use, because it's just so much more helpful and um, and respectful to talk to your kids about, hey, we as a family want to improve our use of screens and our focus on each other. Um, and so we're going to all agree on, tr- on putting down the phone at dinner. And if I'm doing it, I want you to call me out. So, so get your kids, you know, buy-in even at a, at a young school age. So really it starts um, with us, starts with the parents. It always starts with the yeah. parents. I mean, you know, we're setting that example. Um, and then the other part to it is not just to set limits, but also to try to help your kids move toward the more positive uses of screens. I mean, we all can use screens in our lives to connect with others, friends and family members, to create, uh, be creative with media, um, with with things like um, game building and coding, uh, and also to discover, to, to really stoke our curiosity. And, you know, it starts when your kids might be three years old asking, why, mommy, why is there rainbows? Why, you know, what kind of animals um, am I going to see when I go on vacation? Then you look together and you go on Google, you go on YouTube, and you can really learn. And, and the, the screen can be an incredible tool to discover things together. I, I'm hoping that you can give me an opinion on this. I've got an example that I've heard many times before. And you mentioned, you know, not using digital media during bedtime or in the bedroom. Um, do you do you feel like it's a good idea for parents to take their phones, take their children's phones away from them at night as they're going into their bedrooms to to prepare for bed? Do you think that helps facilitate this idea of no no use in the bedroom, or does it kind of establish a relationship of mistrust? What are what are some kind of some of the positives and negatives of that? That's a great question, and I really think, you know, it depends on your family situation. I think it, it can be a simple thing to do as a simple family habit. Again, I would also advise parents to charge their phones outside of the bedroom at night, and if we all have a place that we keep our devices, um, I think that's a great way of going about it. I mean, you might have um, some pushback, especially if it's a new rule or a new limitation, Yeah. Um, but but sleep is such an important thing to guard, and I think that, um, you know, it, it's you're taking away that opportunity for your kid to be tempted. Uh, and so it's similar to, to, for example, 
dessert, right? Like we have times and places for dessert. And if you have a rule that the kitchen closes at 9 p.m., like some families do, um, it's not necessarily that you don't trust your kid. It's just, hey, that's the guideline. Yeah. Okay. That's good advice. Um, and I'm also, I want to give you another scenario here. So we've, we've talked a little bit about some of the negatives of screen time, but as you also mentioned, there are good things that come out of our media use. Uh, and just an example yesterday, um, I was sitting down with my, with my six-year-old daughter who was sick and I thought, you know, this will be a good opportunity for me to just go and spend time with her and not just talk about how sick she is, but I'll sit down and I'll enjoy this program that she's watching. I, I, I don't do that much where if she's watching Barbie, for instance, where I sit down and watch it with her. And it, I was maybe there a couple of minutes before she took her arm and she wrapped it around my arm. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Do you think there are some positives that can come out of enjoying television together or enjoying screen time together? I absolutely do. And that's why I tell parents to enjoy screen time, not too much and mostly together. Um, Whether it's, you know, something active like exploring the answer to a science question or just that time of togetherness. And the great thing about that that you mentioned is, you know, we want to give our kids an assist in interpreting the messages that they're getting from the media. We don't want to dictate to them what to think, but we want to provoke some some critical thinking. And if you're watching a show, even a show like Barbie's, you know, you're not necessarily going to prohibit that show, but something might happen that you might see and say, hey, you know, do you think that that was a good way to solve her problem? Yeah. Or, you know, what are these friends talking about? Or, hey, they sure like shopping a lot. <laughs> <laughs> And without being completely, you know, without being completely critical of what they're watching, just give them, you know, provoke a little bit of curiosity in their own minds and and kids will really run with that. I think another one would be, gee, they sure spend a lot of time at the beach. (laughs) (laughs) They're lucky, right? I don't wear sunscreen. (laughs) So I'm curious to know what what do we see going forward with the advances that that we're going to see in in technology? How how are those advances going to affect our screen time? And how does that change the advice? Well, it's getting a lot more complicated. Uh, Just during the time that I was working on the book, smart speakers became much more common, the Alexa, the Echoes. And that is really interesting. It moves the, uh, in some ways, it moves the computer back into a shared space. So rather than have, you know, dad scrolling through his phone, you can say, hey, Alexa, what's the weather today? Um, and so it's something that kids really enjoy interacting with, but oh, yeah. we have to be really, you know, they really do. Um, but we have to be very mindful of it because all of these things, virtual reality, augmented reality, um, as well as internet of things, you know, the home connected devices, um, these are making digital realities much more ubiquitous and surrounding us. And so the idea of a home as a haven from being constantly connected is going to get harder and harder to preserve. And I think it's a value that we really need to uphold and celebrate its importance um, and develop, continue to develop new strategies around it. Anya, just in closing here, what is the one thing that you would think would be the best thing that parents can do today to make a positive change in this department? I think that we can start taking an interest in our kids' media interests. So, you know, if your kid is using media right now, 
you should get curious about what it is that they like. Why do they like it? You know, is there any way that something that they're interested in could connect to a school interest or something for a career and, and try to build that bridge because we, you know, we have a diminishing amount of time in our kids' lives when we have influence over them and where they want to emulate us. And I think when it comes to steering them towards a more positive digital future, um, you know, the time is now. Well, Anya, we really appreciate your time here on the Matt Townsend Show. Her name is Anya Kamenetz, and she is the author of the new book, The Art of Screen Time, giving us some ideas here today on what we can do to take a look inward, see the changes that we need to make as parents, taking an interest in in, uh, their media usage, and then also uh, just keeping things in check, making sure that we're using media at the appropriate times and not using it when we really should just be doing things like getting sleep. When we return, we're going to be speaking with our good friends at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their program here in just about 15 minutes. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Cole Wissinger and you enjoyed the Winter Olympics, then you learned the hard truth that they've got to come to an end. And we saw that yesterday as they had their closing ceremonies. However, one thing that you can learn here on the Matt Townsend Show that uh, some things never come to an end. And just like our wonderful, loving relationship with our sports-related show and our sports aficionados, Spencer and Jerem of BYU Sports Nation. How are you, gentlemen? So happy to continue that long-standing tradition of friendship and camaraderie that we have established in this moment. Thank you. Now, did you guys watch the closing ceremonies? I did watch part of the closing ceremonies. Yeah? Did you get—were you choked up either by the fact that it was over finally or that uh, U.S. didn't win as many medals—the lowest number of medals in 20 years? No. In fact, I was choked up— over what NBC Sports did the last eight minutes of their closing ceremonies broadcast. Really? Which is put together the most dramatic and emotion-evoking moments from the last two and a half weeks to the Remember the Titans music. It was awesome. Now, are you talking about na-na-na-na, na-na-na-na? Nope, not that hey. one. No, but keep oh. going. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only song I remember from that movie. <laughs> that one, right? Well, I it doesn't sound familiar, but I, I really NBC appreciate it. Put it out if you haven't watched it. <laughs> you need to that go one, find right? it. Really, really. I need cool. validation. Was that the? Was that so. Is it a good is it a good summary for those of us who didn't really tune into the Olympics? Absolutely it is. Okay. I'll have to check it Wait, out. Wait, the Olympics are over? Yeah. Yeah. No, Jeff, it was so good. Like the last When did eight they minutes, start? Mike Carrico <laughs> delivered a a monologue that kind of summed up the political landscape in Korea. Wait, I thought that was wow. Bob Costas' job. That's why he didn't right? wasn't there. No, it was it was really well delivered, and then it set up these these images and the music and the emotion. It just I, it was I thought it was a fantastic way. They could have done wrap one up their moment. Olympic coverage. Yeah, Rolling Stone is thrown. It, it was better. Are. It was better than one shining moment. You're skiing for your life. See can, uh, now, You're maybe a you snowboard star. <laughs> 
Maybe you can. Maybe you can do us a favor here on the show. Uh, for those of us who can't tune into your program, maybe you can put together like an eight-minute montage of just. The two of you singing and doing voices. Well, we have uh, eight we minutes have done is that. too long. One minute. We, one we, minute. We did a montage for show one thousand. Ooh. I think it was like two minutes long. If you follow us on the gram, mm-hmm. Bruno Mars validating my the gram. By the way, hmm. I think Cardi B has a line in there about the gram. Yeah. Oh, Cardi B, you're going to the Cardi yeah. B card. Yeah. <laughs> I've never. Okay, um, if you follow us on the gram, we spit out a one minute recap of the best of what happened on the show. Okay, that's a good plug. I, you don't I, even have to watch the 52 minutes of content we put out there a day. I've never checked out the Graham. I'm a huge fan of the Graham Canyon, though. Yeah. Outstanding ice cream. Yes. At the Brigham. So what we learned on the show today is that Cole is more of a Winter Olympics fan, and I think I'm more of a Summer Olympics fan. I think that the ratings would suggest that the majority of the United States population is more of a fan of the Summer Olympics. Salt Lake, the number one market, by the way, for the Winter Olympic viewing. Wow. Yep. Way to go. Yep. Um, really curious to know. You guys are famous. Even if even what? if you're even if you're considered famous at a local level, you're still more famous than a Cole Wissinger or a Jeff Simpson. You're more recognizable. That is without question. So I'm curious the TV to know. Part helps with the recognition. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you guys get hounded wherever you go, or have you ever had somebody that no. sends you creepy notes or even stalked you? We uh, no, yes, we get letters, really, but we get letters <laughs> from. Mainly old people. So we've also learned that Jerem does not get stalked, but Spencer is more stocked. of a, a stockable guy. You got stalked? Right? I've never heard this. You want to share this on national radio? Well, I... Or what tell, do, tell what me after? You, yeah, I, I can... Let's tell Jeff at lunch or something. We can define it. What, what do you define as stalking? <laughs> well, I, I gave you the, the lesser known examples, but somebody that will send you a, an array of gifts or notes that you... That you that creeps you out, maybe you want them to stop. We get we get gifts. We're we not get, NCAA athletes. Yeah, we get nice, gifts, but, but like, I don't, I don't know that I've ever been creeped out. But I I have had people like wait in obscure places for me. Ooh, okay, is, that is creepy. Kind of weird. You know? Now, um, would you be creeped <laughs> You've out? Some obscure places too. <laughs> <laughs> Amen to that. <laughs> One specific story in mind that we won't tell here. Okay. Um, would it upset Boise. you? <laughs> Would it upset you if somebody were to say pizza stock you? What do you mean by that? Like offer pizza, just give us pizza? Well, we have this story of this guy in Germany. He's this lawyer who is being pizza stocked. He has some anonymous person mm. sending him scores of pizza to his office. See, now that doesn't sound like stocking. That well, I wouldn't anthrax. Ooh, hmm. When we get a letter, I always open it and think anthrax. But if somebody sent you a pizza years later. anonymously, would you would you question it or would you yeah. just dive no, in? I, no, I question a lot of things. I got a key really? lime yeah. pie anonymously. Did you and dive I in? I ate it and it was delicious. And the yes. DOE fan that sent it was really nice. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, that horn that you started growing <laughs> out of your head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you had a full head of hair at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, goodness. Okay, well, it's good to know that uh, you haven't been stocked. It, I met up with you at Costco one time, and it looked like you had been pizza stocked. Oh, we bought our own pizza, and we were talking oh, we to some BYU to eat, yeah. fans, hmm. but they did not stock us with the pizza, per se. So it wasn't like George behind the counter was saying, by the way, this one's on, this one is on us. 
Oh, if that happened, like that. I'd be happy. No, it's, but I have it's a rando pizza sent to the building where it's like, what's in this? I have this benefited from from that on, on, on a few occasions. Oh, good for you. See, this is on us. Yep, man, the benefits oh, yeah, of being we'll on that. TV. Okay, well, speaking of Jeff, the benefits us, of okay. being on. Oh, did you did you mean that? Yeah. Yes. Wow. Now Matt's not here today. So Are you going to buy me a pizza? Matt, Sure. Costco? Okay. Yeah, buck I'd be 50. happy to buy you a <laughs> piece of Costco pizza 50? any day. Yeah. So tell us, the, the buck 50? tell us the benefits of tuning into your program here in just six minutes. Listen, there's so much going on today. We barely have time to contain ourselves. The end of the regular season is upon us. Are you shocked by the result against Gonzaga? What's your confidence level going into Vegas? Are you concerned that BYU went 5-5 five and five in their last 10? We will discuss all of this. I we'll noticed be, you, oh, didn't, go ahead. you didn't pause for any of my answers to any of those questions. No, they're rhetorical. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we're not actually looking for answers. <laughs> we will weigh in. Yeah, yeah. we're trying to fit all this in before uh, 55. Okay. Okay. We want to know your answers. Tweet seconds into the left. show. Hashtag BYUSN. Okay. Spencer, you were going to say? Uh, yes. Mark Durant, the always entertaining BYU basketball analyst, will join us. What's his confidence level going into the West Coast Conference Tournament. Uh, I mean, the Gonzaga Invitational, as so dubbed by Jerem Jordan. Yeah, Gonzaga's winning that, probably. We'll talk to Mark Durant. Uh, we'll talk to uh, Eric Sykes from the men's volleyball team. Nice comeback. The Scott Sterling moment that happened Saturday. We're going to show it to you. Uh, you can uh, listen to us describe it. As Broken well, bone and all. Okay, that's coming up in five minutes from two of our most stockable guys in Utah County. Woo! Thanks for encouraging that. <laughs> Pizza, please. <laughs> All right. Have a great show, you guys. Cole, I'm curious to know, imagine somebody took your favorite food in the entire world and randomly and anonymously sent it to you. Would you eat it or would you question it? Anonymously would be scary. Okay. But pizza seems untamperable to me. Like, if Mm. it looks like pizza and smells like pizza, it's probably a pizza. And I think, and this is just a stereotype, but if you're a college kid, there's no way you're going to question pizza. No, no, definitely not. I'm. I graduated many, many years ago, and I probably wouldn't either. There you go. Free pizza. You mm-hmm. still have that mindset. Right? What do I have it's, to sign it's up ingrained. for? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, as you know, we like to end each show with our hero story of of the day, and uh, this is another great one. For seven months, Trenton Lewis would walk eleven long miles to work, getting up way before dawn in order to arrive on time for his four a.m. shift. Oof. When he was hired for the job at a UPS facility in Little Rock, Arkansas, Lewis, 21, didn't have transportation and was banking on my feet, he told CNN. A single father to 14-month-old Carmen, he never told his co-workers about his trek because my pride is strong, he said, and he would do whatever necessary to provide for his child. Despite his attempt to keep this under wraps, co-worker Patricia Mama Pat Byrant, love that, found out Lewis was walking 11 miles each way to and from work, and she quietly came up with a plan. She would raise enough money to buy Lewis a car. Their colleagues pitched in, and the team came up with $2,000 to purchase a used car. By, uh, Bryant's husband, Kenneth, fixed a tiny blemish on the bumper, and the 2006 Saturn Ion was ready for Lewis. This is a better car than what I drive. His co-workers told him to come outside for a quick union meeting, and that's when they surprised him with his new wheels. He thanked everyone for their support and promised he was never going to forget this, ever. As for his first trip, it was to pick up Carmen so they could eat lunch together. I love that story. What a great example of what 
what we can all do. We all have coworkers, people that we care about, but maybe we don't express it in ways like this. And it doesn't have to be something like big. You can all team up together so that you can all com- you can all combine your little efforts to make one big effort. And I know that uh, that this young man certainly appreciated that. So these coworkers are our heroes of the day. That's going to do it for this edition of the Matt Townsend Show. We're Dr. Mattless, but we might not be tomorrow. We'll see how sore his throat is. BYU Sports Nation is coming up with, again, two of our most stockable guys, Spencer and Jerem.